Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesterday Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the Picture Palace of the Past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is not going to talk about a specific film. It's not going to talk about a specific radio broadcast. It's not even going to talk about Jack Benny for at least another five minutes. But we are going instead to talk about being a fan of nostalgic entertainment at a younger age. What we're going to do is unprecedented. I am not going to be your host this time. <gasps> Shock. But also everybody's going, yes, fucking finally. No, what we are going to do is hand this off to a gentleman who I have known for the last two years and have grown to love and adore. He is the lead producer of No Soap Radio. He is going to be the talent behind the video direction of the International Jack Benny Fan Convention in 2024. And... He's been very fun to chat with over text when it comes to needing to quote Marx Brothers at the drop of a hat. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome our moderator for this evening, Mr. Paul Covet. Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Welcome, sir. <laughs> yeah, now we should... Did, uh... you, did you prepare that opening speech or you say that every week? I'm sorry, I, I'm not up on the Ballyhoo stuff that way. Do you no, say uh, the same thing the, at the beginning of every program? The first phrase is uh, is is rehearsed. It's the shtick. It's the bit. And then everything else is either pre-written or off the top of my head. Uh, so it's a uh, it's it's a challenge to uh, think of it each and every time. So uh, it's uh, it's I try to be a carnival barker. Uh, and sometimes it works, and sometimes my brain's too mushy to remember anything, so I end up rewriting it or re-recording it later. So all right, well, you uh, did fine tonight. Well, thank you. But uh, all right, well, this is going to be something different. Can you set up for us what we're going to see? And yeah, tonight? well, I mean, I've been thinking about this question for a long time. I'm going to re reveal right off the bat that I'm going to be asking people, men and women, their ages tonight, and you're going to think <laughs> I'm a rude. <laughs> Son of a bee, but you need you need a straw hat though, and a and a bamboo cane, and you need to be at a, in a carnival. Going, oh wait, like, hold on one second. <laughs> Here's my straw hat. Here's oh, my bamboo cane. There we go. Yeah, now I'm gonna give you a quarter. You guess my age, and then I feel val validated. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm 69, 
<laughs> I'm looking for a reaction from anyone. No, everybody fainted. Okay. Excellent. Uh, so that, that doesn't mean that much, uh, except that I grew up with what I call a severe case of nostalgia. And, you know, I don't know the ultimate definition of nostalgia, but for me, it was always strange that I ended up longing for a time that I didn't grow up in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was before I was around. And I loved things like old, old Hollywood movies, mm -hmm. old radio comedians, mm -hmm. old Wax music. Cylinders, all of those things, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know why, but while my other friends were busy with sports or listening to the monkeys, I was paying attention to, you know, the latest uh, Jack Benny uh, appearance on Ed Sullivan. Very cool. Um, so I understand being of a, a younger age and, and longing for to, to have participated in a time that was decades before. Mm -hmm. um, now, I will say that being 69, when I was growing up as a little kid into my teenage years, Someone like Jack Benny was omnipresent. He was part of my life. He was there on TV all the time, whether it was on his own show or a guest on Ed Sullivan or a guest on someone else's show. Mm -hmm. He was there. Him, Bob Hope, George Burns. One so those, he was a, he was around for me. So yeah. I, I I found a, a connection with him. My grandfather used to talk about listening to Jack Benny all the time, and my grandfather had come from Europe in the late 1920s. Hmm. So somehow he learned English and got into Jack Benny and used to talk about it. I didn't I wasn't that familiar with the radio shows until later, mm -hmm. but Jack Benny was omnipresent. Mm -hmm. I discovered the Marx Brothers at a very early age. I learned about a lot about this stuff through uh, Warner Brothers Looney Tune cartoons. You know, mm -hmm. uh, there would be these strange figures in some of these cartoons, and it was like, "What is that?" And then I would see the live version, and it was amazing to me. Right. Anyway, so that's the way I grew up. And um, a couple of years ago. I got involved in uh, the, well, I've been part of the Jack Benny International Fan Club for a number of years, but a couple of years ago, uh, someone instigated doing a recreation of a Jack Benny radio show mm -hmm. through email, and I answered the, uh, the advertisement, and uh, a couple other people here did as well, and we ended up doing our first recreation for the 2022 Benny convention. Mm -hmm. I fell in love with these people, and I also noticed that, for the most part, I was a lot older than the rest of them. Mm -hmm. And people in this group have encyclopedic knowledge of Golden Age Hollywood and old-time radio. Mm -hmm. I thought I was good, and to my friends and family, I'm the expert. I'm left in the dust with these people. I mean, the Ballyhoo host, Zach Eastman, continues to amaze me. I don't understand how he knows that much. I was a film major in, in college. Mm -hmm. I learned about the history of cinema, mm -hmm. but 
he seems to have, I don't know, he uh, maybe spent many years in college, many more years than me studying film. <laughs> I dropped out of college. There's a there's an advanced answer for you. He dropped, dropped out of college in order to soak in <laughs> this information. Yeah, along college with all the wasn't sufficient. <laughs> college, college was not sufficient. Anyway, <laughs> that's all to say. I started thinking, well, how did these people mm. get into it? Jack Benny was long passed away mm -hmm. by the time everyone here was born mm. uh, and other people of that era. And yet these people, I mean, Annette, who you'll meet in a moment, uh, has her, is it Hometowns for Hollywood? Is that your? Yeah, Hometowns to uh, Hollywood. Hold, mm -hmm. I always get that part wrong. <laughs> She does this amazing, uh, she's got a website, she's written books, she's an authority mm -hmm. on Golden Age Hollywood. Um, anyway, we're going to introduce each person. I'll have them go around and talk about who they are and how they got into all this. But the main question I had, and I approached, when Zach said, do you want to come on the podcast? I said, I've always wanted to ask this question. Mm. As a younger person, younger than a lot younger than me, how did you get into all this? Mm. Because it's ancient, you know? So anyway, that's uh, the impetus behind the show. And um, now I think we should just go around the room and uh, have people uh, introduce themselves and start talking about how they got into this stuff. And, you know, we'll see where it all goes. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm just going to pick someone at random. Um, Hope Sears. If you wouldn't mind, I had a, I had a you premonition you were going to pick me first. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't. I, you're, you're better than me because I didn't. I just did it on the spur of the moment. Yeah. But uh, all yeah, I ask um, is that you state your age and take mm -hmm. it from there. All right, I'm uh, 29 for the second time, so 30. Um, <laughs> and I, um, uh, so I got into all of this. Um, from a really early age, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, but I don't, I don't really have an introduction for myself. I'm a, I'm a floating spirit, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you're a ghost. Well, you're 29, and give us the credentials that you have for being on this show right now. I mean, you are an authority on Jack Benny. Jack Benny, yeah. Um, I would say. Um, my credentials are, I used to have a podcast called All of the Classics. Um, it really kind of cent, uh, centered on, for me, I'm fascinated by comedy in general. And so specifically television comedy. So I really um, admire people like um, uh, Johnny Carson and all of the Tonight Shows. And um, so I followed the Carson podcast. And of course, if you... Uh, love Johnny Carson. You know that he, uh, that Jack Benny was Johnny Carson's idol. And so that's how I kind of became an authority on um, Jack Benny. And well, how did you uh, get just... into Johnny Carson? Were you, were you watching him while he was on? No, um, no. no, no, he actually ended uh, in 92. His... Yes. And Conan started in 93. And so Conan is my favorite comedian um, of all time. And so I um, really just started paying attention to what all of my favorite comedians um, said about 
other comedians and who their influences were. And so it was clear that Conan really admired Johnny Carson. And so I sought out Johnny Carson's work and I bought a DVD that had uh, like Carson and Friends. And of course, that had Jack Benny on it. And um, I mean, I really love all kinds of media, mu musicals, um, the uh, of the MGM musical era is also a love of mine. But I feel like in recent years, yes, my focus has really been um, the Jack Benny and radio and all of that comedy scene. So what what age would you say you started paying attention to that stuff? Well, I always um, kind of grew up watching it a little bit because my mom, when I was really young, she really watched a lot of like Doris Day movies and Cary Grant and all that. Um, but then that started to kind of fade away. And I, I feel like I started exploring it more for myself um, probably when I was late middle school, early, uh, early high school. Um, so... Uh, I would be watching PBS, like whatever movie was showing that week. And uh, I would also, of course, it was Friday night. So I'd also be watching my late night comedians. And so um, there were surprisingly a lot of like infomercials about like Dean Martin, like variety show and stuff on around that time. So I was huge into loving music. And when I found like Dean Martin's voice, I was like, this is it. This is my the best, and so I just started to really explore um, this whole world and exploring different people in that in that space. Okay, we'll get back to you with more of that later. But let's <laughs> uh, move it on over to Victoria Gordon. Okay, going for me. Hi, I'm Victoria Gordon. Mm -hmm. I have been on the podcast before. And your so age is? Tell us your age. Yes, I'm 30 years old, and I was here recently talking about The Thin Man, yes, so you if you were, listen Nora, to that episode, yes, <laughs> it's a great episode. I had so much fun being on yeah, the podcast, and I'm so, so glad to be back. I had a really great time. Um, I, like I said, I'm 30. I grew up in a very interesting kind of environment where both sides of my family were very passionate about the past. My maternal family is in classical music, so they loved all things old. We'd go to the Hollywood Bowl. I'm a native of Los Angeles. We loved going to the Hollywood Bowl. My grandmother always had TV land type sitcoms playing on her television. We listened to classical music or traditional musical theater albums. My other side of my family, and I'm gonna leave it, there is another person here who is related to me. So I'm gonna leave some of this for her to talk about. But the other side of my family was very into classic TV and classic music. Frankly, that's where, you know, like Hope was talking about Rat Pack kind of music. We always had Rat Pack CDs or even, I think we even had some vinyls like I've come across back in the day. Um, so there was not a big jump to get to Turner Classic Movies, which was always on. I, to be honest, have always been more into TV and theater. So my encyclopedic knowledge such that it is, is about classic television and musical theater from the inception to say the eighties. Um, my sister- So when it comes to uh, your expertise in TV, would you watch, how did you learn all that on TV land? I mean, how did you- watch old programs oh growing up it was always tv land so in the mornings i would watch i dream of genie and the monsters before school um bewitched and i love lucy in the afternoons um this was a little bit more recent but i always threw in the golden girls when i could i 
had a TV land themed birthday party for my 10th birthday where oh. everyone dressed up as their favorite TV land characters. Like I just, wow. I love classic TV. Nice. And to this day, as a writer and as a performer, my favorite stuff, I mean, I always joke, but it's true. When I was a kid and I realized I could not have my own MTM sitcom, I was devastated. <laughs> this thing that bugged me about TV land, I loved when it came out because I was into the old shows too. Mm -hmm. But if you wanted to watch something like Burns and Allen, you had to stay up till three in the morning. <laughs> I mean, they always showing the things I really wanted to see deep into the night. Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah. That's true. And I do think that now we have it's a little bit easier because like, I'll tell you, for example, my dad loves his classic TV and he goes and he finds like the Dean Martin roast and stuff like that, which is so funny on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So today it would be much easier to get someone into this stuff, just send them to YouTube. But when we were, when I was young and when, cause we're all around the same age, when the rest of us here were younger and TV land was still pretty new, we could watch old shows, but it was, it was more of the, you know, I love Lucy type stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's more your traditional great. sitcoms. It was, uh, or traditional drama shows or action shows. It was not, they weren't dipping their toe into variety, but I do remember TV land having like Benny Allen, and scattered stuff but yeah as paul says it's like three or four in the morning you're not you're not able to stay up that late okay. at our age <laughs> okay so everyone the person talking now is someone you know very well his name is zach eastman <laughs> <laughs> and uh zach is now going to give us the brief uh, history of his life and you are how old uh, uh 39 no i'm 32 um 30, 32 yeah 32 um, so somehow in that 32 years, you've packed in more information than I can possibly imagine regarding the stuff we're talking about tonight. How did that happen? I don't know. I don't know if it's more than any other person here on this panel. Like, Oh, it's, yes, it's, it is. It's basic. It's more um, than me. <laughs> uh, there are two catalytic events that get me both into film, uh, classic film and classic radio. Um, and they both center around my grandfather. Uh, Peter Ottaviano, who's no, long, no longer with us. He passed away in 2015. Um, but um, <clears throat> he he got me in to it sort of on accident. Uh, when it came to radio, um, we have Cracker Barrel out here. I'm sure everybody out here in, in this panel knows of a Cracker Barrel somewhere in their state. Um, and they had a spinning rack full of cassette tapes. And they were not what I thought they were. They were, I thought they were audiobooks, and I found a Sherlock Holmes one, and my grandfather bought it for me. And then I started listening to it, and I'm like, And what age would you have been? I was 10 years old, around 10 years old. And I started listening to it, and I'm like, There's commercials on this thing. What the fuck is this? <laughs> like, this doesn't make any sense. I didn't say the word fuck then. Um, but uh, I, uh, but, but he's I, making up for that now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of my stories retroactively have tons of cursing in them. Um, but I started listening to it and I just got entranced from it. And the episode of Sherlock Holmes in particular was the Bruce Partington plans with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce in the roles of Holmes and Watson. Uh, and then on the flip side of it uh, was a later broadcast that had John Gilgood and Orson Welles uh, doing the final problem story from Sherlock Holmes. So... Uh, not too long after that, my parents bought a VHS tape of Fun and Fancy Free from 1947, which if anybody doesn't know what that is, it's the best Disney movie ever made. So suck it, Frozen. Um, because it has, for some reason, uh, a ventriloquist and his two dummies narrating the story of Jack and the Beanstalk and a cricket who's trying to get a bear and a mama doll 
to make love with each other. I don't know why it's there, but it's there. Um, but uh, no, it's uh, that that VHS tape had a behind the scenes featurette with interviews with people like Ward Kimball, who was with the studio at the time, uh, surviving animators, and Leonard Malton. And during that, Leonard Malton mentioned, "Oh, Charlie McCarthy uh, and Edgar Bergen were radio stars back in the '40s." And I'm like, "How does that make sense? That's yeah. a ventriloquist and his dummy." Uh, so I got into them first uh, in comedy. The radio show. Yeah, the radio I got show. into the radio show. You hadn't show. seen any of the films that they were in? Apart from Fun and Fancy Free, no. No, that okay. was the only one. And then I started digging into them. And then my dad got a got me a comedy set from Costco when they still sold them. It was a tape set. And I wanted him to listen to Edgar Bergen with me. And he said, well, before that, can we listen to this? And it was a Jack Benny program from 1944. Uh, with Groucho Marx as his guest star. And I had known who Groucho Marx was because I had found the Marx Brothers around that same time uh, through Netflix when they still had DVDs coming through, and I found Duck Soup and watched that. Uh, so I listened to it, and I wasn't as interested in Jack at first. I was thrilled by Groucho, but for some reason, when I ran out of Charlie McCarthy episodes to listen to, the next one I listened to was Jack Benny. And I started recognizing voices that I knew from growing up as a kid, like, oh, that's Phil Harris. That's the voice of Blue. There's the voice of Johnny Appleseed. And what's the voice of Bugs Bunny doing here? Um, <laughs> and so that developed my love of Jack. But film-wise, it was my grandfather again because uh, I went to go visit my grandparents when I was 10 uh, on my own first solo trip out. They took me to Legoland and after that trip took me to a family friend's house. And in the middle of that, they told me, pick a VHS that you want to watch while we have adult time. And I found two tapes. One was Fiddler on the Roof and the other one was Casablanca. And I was like, well, I'm only going to have time for one of these movies. So I picked Casablanca. And I watched the first 15 minutes of the movie. But before that was a whole 30 minute behind the scenes featurette of the making of Casablanca. So when I got in the car later that night, I asked my grandfather, can we find Casablanca and watch it before I go home? And he said, sure. So he took me to the local Julian library. We got it from the library. We sat down, watched it, and my mind was blown. And so uh, that kind of kicked me off into the stratosphere. And so since then, the love of Golden Age comedy and Golden Age film just kind of kept perpetuating itself. But it really started blossoming even further when I was, uh, I went through a spell in my 20s of pure and utter alcoholism. Uh, I'm now five years clean, but a lot of the work that kept me through kept me through that was a lot of Golden Age titles. A lot of different things kept me kept me company in the dark days, but Golden Age Hollywood stuff and radio stuff definitely kept me from going down even darker paths. And so uh, it's just been with me constantly throughout my life. Even if I haven't needed it right away, it was always there as a life vest. So now I've tried to spread that as much as possible okay well we'll we'll get back to some of this i have some questions for you based on what you said but let's let's there's a couple more folks to to get here course, how yeah. about uh onette annette bohenik yes uh, uh, annette is uh with zach and myself and victoria we are part of this uh radio old-time radio recreation group called no soap radio uh more about that later but um annette we mentioned that you have this uh amazing golden age Hollywood website. You've got books. Uh, how did it start for you? And how old are you? 
Yeah, so starting off, I'm I'm 33 years old. I've just discovered this is few instances where I'm the oldest one of the bunch, like mm-hmm. talking about classic Hollywood. So of of, um, of, of the rest of us, not of the rest not, of us, not right? older. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's something that started for me pretty early on as well. I, I grew up watching a lot of classic Hollywood. Uh, for me. I, I always think of blockbuster video, just a nod back to, to video rentals, really. Uh, and thinking of how my dad would often check out uh, VHS tapes that stemmed from this period. And it would range from things like uh, silent film comedies generally, or at least early comedies. So things like um, Our Gang, The Little Rascals, or Laurel and Hardy, or even Charlie Chaplin. And um, so I was very much used to black and white films and um, part of my family heritage too is um, uh, we're, we're Polish like my mom is from Poland and um, English was not her first language and uh, my dad would translate a lot of these films for her on the spot too while we were watching them and with silent films too it's kind of this beautiful thing where you don't necessarily need to translate um, what's happening on screen so I feel like I was lucky to get the exposure to silent film too and looking, uh, what age is this happening what what, what age gosh, are you talking um, about when I maybe it like I was like four five six like Whoa. really early like yeah <laughs> like uh especially with like our our gang I mean uh just as a kid watching other kids get into trouble run around with their dog it was it was great fun and I think a lot of early comedy too is uh sort of cartoon cartoonish in nature too so it's it's not hard to make the leap from like pantomime comedic shtick onto like cartoons and i watched a lot of classic looney tunes and saw the the cartoon caricatures uh, as well uh, but for me i think that the big turning point was when i was uh growing up i, I loved the wizard of oz i was absolutely obsessed i wanted to be dorothy i trotted around with my little pomeranian then and there are adorable home movies of me uh, recreating the, the whole thing but um really when my uh, family got cable tv i was around nine years old and very much an oz fan i i was channel surfing uh, one day with my dad and we stumbled across turner classic movies and at that point they were showing uh, a judy mickey rudy judy garland musical it was strike up the band and it just baffled my nine-year-old brain that Judy Garland did something besides play Dorothy. So (laughs) I feel like that opened up just so many doors for me in terms of learning about her and pursuing her filmography. Um, I pretty much booked it over to my public library. Then I had some terrific librarians who printed out Judy's filmography for me and sort of pointed me in the direction of some of her musicals. And it was really through watching a lot of her work uh, that I became familiar with some of the other greats from classic Hollywood since she crossed paths with so many of them throughout her career and it uh, it was just uh, so fun to be really voracious about uh, looking through her filmography and then sort of going down rabbit holes learning about her co-stars and uh, exploring their work reading as much as I could about them and that really introduced me to so many other aspects of this era, including old time radio, including all the great biographies and literature um, surrounding some of these individuals too. So um, it's been fun to continue that love. That love has never gone away from me or for me, but uh, to also contribute to the conversations about classic film. I feel like um, I'm very lucky to have fallen into this niche of 
focusing upon classic movie star hometowns. Um, I have for the past 10 years been doing this travel blog, Hometowns to Hollywood, um, and that documents my trips to the hometowns of classic film stars looking at how their lives and legacies are being honored in their hometowns and beyond. Um, so it's so fun for me to be able to just continue thriving in this passion and sharing that love with others through my talks, my lectures, my books, uh, No Soap Radio, certainly, and of course, uh, even podcasts too. Uh, but behind it all, it's all about connection and community for me. I just love being able to um, share this love with fellow classic film fans, just finding people who sort of speak the language, uh, quote, but, uh, and to just, uh, yeah, develop these friendships and make these connections. I think we're all so lucky to be able to connect with one another um, in, in so many different formats now. Wow. So you, uh, the, the part that is interesting, really interesting to me right now, because of what we're doing tonight, is that the bug bit you at age four. <laughs> uh, that's uh, uh, crazy. Okay, we'll we'll get back to that. But we have one more guest. It's another person <laughs> whose name. Well, your name used to end in Gordon. I'm sorry, but I don't know what 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 you go by anymore. I know your first name's Natalie. Um, so tell us about yourself, Natalie Gordon. Somebody. <laughs> Na Natalie Gordon works. Uh, anything works. Um, hello, I am hello. Natalie. I uh, I How old are you? I am twenty eight years old. Uh, the so youngest I, of the bunch. The youngest of the bunch at twenty eight. Uh, I grew up much like my sister Victoria in a house kind of seeped in classic everything: classic TV, classic music. Um, I, around age three, went through a, a long period where I was not a great sleeper. So my mom would, you know, I'd call my mom's name. She'd take me out of bed and she'd take me uh, by the TV and turn on Turner Classic Movies. And we'd start watching old movies from the time I was about three. Uh, I also was an early riser. So I did really acquaint myself with some of that like four or five in the morning, classic Burns and Allen honeymooner <laughs> stuff that you guys were talking about. I did watch a lot of that. But um, for me, uh, I, while I grew up in a home with lots of TV land, I've seen a lot of classic television. Uh, film was my great love. I was kind of a, a rebel in my own uh, family because everyone was a, a, a TV person. But I was this like film person from a young age. Um so I sought out every opportunity I could to watch movies, uh, not just classic movies, but contemporary movies, international cinema, really, really, really old stuff from the dawn of cinema in the late 1800s. Uh, I just love it all. I love movies. Um, I went on eventually to study uh, cinema and media studies at the University of Southern California, USC School of Cinematic Arts, um, which was- I think we've heard of that one. <laughs> <laughs> It was a great place to go to school. I mean, when you're going to school in the middle of like a courtyard with a Douglas Fairbank statue, like it's just fun. Um, we were an incredibly lucky university. Leonard Malton was a professor. Like I know Zach mentioned him. I mean, there were just incredible opportunities there to learn and to study and um, to really like get to take unbelievable historic film classes and access the the cinema library we had at USC, which was amazing. So I really took advantage of that. I studied a lot. I wrote extensively papers and on film theories about classic cinema and uh, really a lot of great classes and work on old Hollywood. So it's something that I've been passionate about from 
about the age of three on. And it's something that I still love today. I love all kinds of movies. I could have this conversation about old Hollywood. I could do this about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, you know, I I, I just love movies. I'm happy I to think, be here. I think that's going to be another Ballyhoo episode is the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, yeah. How you I got was, into uh, it at uh, age uh, three. You, you, you're kind of actually predicting something that has slightly been discussed with another previous guest. Oh my God, I'll be back. I can talk all MCU. I'll I'll tease it and I will be in contact with you about that, Natalie. But I have, the one thing that just stuck out to me in Natalie's story is the idea of her being a rebel in the household. So I have imagining, imagining Natalie in her teen years throwing a TV guy down on the ground and stomping on it, going like, this isn't cinema, just smashing it. <laughs> well, I, you know, we, we have uh, two sisters here, the Gordon sisters, and we've not mentioned w- one of the thing, one of the big things that for the rest of us is a big deal. I, I know it's a big deal for them too, but you have to tell us who your grandfather was. Mm-hmm. On your, on your, on your father's side. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, actually, this is part of how I originally connected with No Soap Radio is our grandfather was Al Gordon. Al was one of the new writers. I'm doing air quotes um, for Jack Benny. So he came in towards the end of the radio run. He and his partner, Hal Goldman, ran the radio show for three years while working on the TV show, then transitioned full-time to TV. And they stayed with Jack for his specials through the end of his life. So we grew up literally in the shadow of a Jack Benny portrait. Um, the man played an outsized role in our lives, even though he passed away decades before we were born. But our grandfather lived until I was 18 and Natalie was 16. So we were able to spend a lot of time with him. We grew up a couple blocks. Actually, this is very ironic. Years later, he grew up, He lived in a condo when we were growing up. Years later, Natalie met this guy and he was looking to move into a condo and he found one in Century City and Natalie said, oh my God, that's where my grandfather lived. And Natalie and her now husband live in the same complex my grandfather lived in when we were kids. So yeah, the first time I drove by the bench he used to sit on, I got a little misty. But regardless, we always spent lots of time with him. He was hilarious. He knew so much. He knew so many people. And for those in the Ballyhoo community who are not familiar, Paul worked tirelessly. I cannot even tell you how hard Paul worked last year for the Jack Benny convention in 2023 to do a documentary on our grandfather's life. And it was such a fun experience working with Paul, working with everyone. I can't say enough good things about how that turned out. I learned so much along the way too. You should also mention that, oh, first of all, thank you, Paul. But Victoria should also mention that a huge influence on early film for us was when um, our grandfather sat us down to watch uh, Gigi, which ended up becoming one of our favorite films. And he said, you have to watch this film. And he sat us down. And I think we were must have been, I mean, I, don't, I could have been like four or five. And so um, we... No, that was one, but you're leaving out the other one, which is I think you were about seven and I was about nine when he brought us Blazing Saddles. Yeah. We were way too young for that. <laughs> so uh, Al Gordon was a fan of Blazing Saddles? Oh, he loved Blazing Absolutely. Saddles. I love it, this it, it was so the camp, much. It was the campfire scene. That's what did it for him, right? It was the campfire I'm sure. Scene. I'm yeah, sure. Knowing, knowing Al, that probably was it. But I mean, we were so little. I can't believe our parents let us. I mean... <laughs> I, I just, I can't believe they didn't. Well, this up. was a different kind of household they grew up in. I, I can attest to that now. This is, I, this is different. When you have your grandfather is, you know, this comedy writer who worked 45 years straight without taking a day off as a freelancer, except I guess during, he was probably paid a salary when he was working for Jack. Which well, Jack and other like shows, he was, a, he was a staff writer on a couple of shows along the way. It wasn't all freelance, but. but um, I mean, imagine growing up in yeah. a house like that. Then, you know, Victoria and Natalie's father, uh, Neil, 
he was Al's son, so he grew up with all this stuff. And you, you know, you mentioned earlier, Victoria, that your father's into old TV, but he ended up in the TV biz as well, right? He did. He did. He started as a teenager. Actually, I learned this during the course of the documentary. My dad was a teenager, for those who are TV savvy, during the Pat Paulson for President campaign. My grandfather was a Smothers Brothers writer who was working on this Pat Paulson campaign. And they used to get so much mail, like fan mail, hate mail, requests for whatever. So they brought in my dad and a couple of the other writers' kids. And they were like, okay, great. You guys are like 15, 16. You can write a letter. You're, you're in charge of the fan mail. And so that nice. was my dad's first real job was responding to and dealing with fan mail. And again, I'm using air quotes because some of it was not so friendly. But I didn't know that until we started working on the documentary. Wow. Yeah, that, that was one great thing about the documentary that not only did I learn a million things, but the family was learning things as well. I mean, pulling things out of drawers that they hadn't looked in, you know? Oh, God, yes. I think in the editing, I'm going to put a clip of Pat Paulson for president. One of those. Oh, oh you, you must. We of the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour have had our share of censorship problems. But we are not against censorship because we realize there is always the danger of something being said. <laughs> Many people feel that the censorship is a violation of freedom of speech. Bull feathers. <laughs> censorship is not unconstitutional. Censors have a right to censor what you hear. The Bill of Rights says nothing about freedom of hearing. <laughs> Let's face it, there have to be some realistic taboos, especially with political comment. After all, the leaders of our country were not elected to be tittered at. Censors have to draw the line somewhere. For instance, we are allowed to say Ronald Reagan is a lousy actor. But we're not allowed to say he's a lousy governor. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. We know he's a good actor. I mean, I guess seriously, they were desperate for people because the Smothers Brothers was such a chaotic thing. They didn't expect what they were getting in terms of the audience reaction. So they're like, okay, great. Your writer's kids are young, old enough to do this. Great. Bring them in. They're, oh they are now your fan mail people. Dad was there at the Smothers Brothers when, what, the Who broke their guitars or some crazy, like, I mean. <laughs> he was there for that. Well, like, well, he... that's where Pete Townsend lost his hearing in one of his ears. He got severe tinnitus because you, you know this story? Keith, no. They, they put... They put some explosives in Keith Moon's drums because at the end, you know, it, those were the days when the Who would smash their instruments at the end of a concert. So they were they were guests on the Smothers Brothers episode, which being the age I am, I watched it. I watched when it happened in the in the late 60s. And I was a Who fan back then. But they were known for smashing the guitars and Keith would kick over the drums. So they they said, let's put some explosives in the bass drum. And, and when he kicks it over, it'll go off. Well, whatever happened, the, the, the person doing the special effects put in too much explosive and there was a tremendous explosion. And, and Pete Townsend, it ruined one of his ears. Oh. Uh, he, he, you see him kind of stumbling around for a while and he does, he, he's literally stumbling around and he smashes a guitar half-heartedly, but, uh, yeah, that was quite so. It's <laughs> quite it's something. it's rare that you hear a story equally as bizarre and irresponsible than the flooding of the Noah's Ark set in 1928. 
Like you know, that. I didn't know about that until you told me. And so right before I came on Ballyhoo, I started Googling this and I was like, because I'm a member of the union. I was like, oh, thank God our union exists now. Yeah, like, I know we're on yeah. strike and everything, but they have a purpose. And it, mm-hmm. it's, should, do you have an episode on that? If not, you should totally do one. Noah's, oh, yeah. I did a full episode on it uh, with Andrew Bueno, who uh, has since been... Yeah, uh, by the time this comes out, the next time you'll hear him, we'll be covering Fantasia because we recorded that uh, a while back with an old friend of ours. Um, but yeah, no, that the research on that is difficult because Warner Brothers did not want anyone to know anything. So either they misplaced a document or they actively did not give something to USC by the time they donated their resources. Uh, Alan K. Rhodes' book specifies that there is no press coverage. And odds are a lot of people were probably paid off as a result of that. But what you do have are the recollections of Dolores Costello and uh, I think it's Byron Haskin, who was one of the cameramen on the set. And uh, Byron Haskin walked off the set as a result of Curtiz being a megalomaniac weirdo, uh, which he generally was in life. Uh, And uh, that so the results of it are unfortunately, every story you hear about it is probably true. Uh, and so like, it's that kind of irresponsibility, uh, is, is, is in tandem with Keith Moon's, uh, drum situation where it's just like, yeah, there's, 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 there's things to bar this stuff now. So those stories don't happen as often anymore as thank, thank. No, no, that, those were the days when things happened. Now yeah. it's all. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, let's get back into uh, the age thing. Uh, I knew that the thread that something that was going to be mentioned by everyone here tonight was TCM, which mm-hmm. changed everything. You hear that, David suddenly... Zaslav? You hear it? <laughs> I do, Zach. I'm paying attention. <laughs> Good. Stop fucking up a hundred-year-old company, you idiot. <laughs> uh, why not to? Uh, <laughs> uh, so... So TCM, I mean, it is the treasure in our country. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they've gone this far and still have kept it from being a commercial station, it, it's just incredible to me. I did not have this growing up. We were talking about The Wizard of Oz. I got to see The Wizard of Oz once a year They played it once a year. CBS played it in January. It was an event. People my age will remember this. It was an event because you only got to see it once a year. Mm. Now you can see it once an hour. It's amazing (laughs) to me that that, that's the case. Now, we, we also, in the early 60s, unless you were really wealthy, I mean, I'm in the early 60s, the first color TVs were coming out. So I grew up with a black and white television. So when Dorothy opens the door and looking out the munchkin land, <laughs> it didn't look any more spectacular. And I, I actually, no, it looked like, okay. And then when they're saying the scene, the scene about, you know, that's a horse of a different color. Well, I never got that. I didn't understand what, you, what he was talking about. <laughs> oh, poor Paul. But, well, but that's the way, that's the way we grew up. That's mm-hmm. the way it was. And, um, I know when we when I first saw it in color, oh, that blew my mind. Oh my God. Oh my God. Anyway, TCM. Well, but Paul, I do thing. want to say one thing based on what you're saying, which I think is so important. Obviously, I think TCM is an incredible resource, and I hate the idea that it's being gutted and put together and you know, whatever they're trying to do with it. 
I will say, and maybe this comes from my TV loving, but I do miss the days of event programming like that. You know, the idea that everyone would sit down and watch The Wizard of Oz at the same time, or that everyone would sit down and watch whatever the thing is. Because today, this, the audience is so segmented, and there are so many different places you can look. And with binge watching and everything, there is no sense of like, we've all done this together, except for like the Super Bowl. No. So, and the slap. Um, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I feel like you that something is missing. It's great for uh, from, uh, you know, to, to be able to study cinema, to be able to have everything at your fingertips, but the event is gone. And, mm. you know, everyone would talk about it the next day, you know, like in school on the Monday morning, because it was always on a Sunday night. It was like, wow, The Wizard of Oz was on. Yeah, did you see that? And it's just those kind of things. Everything's at your fingertips now. So uh, I, well, I wanted to ask every, oh, go, go ahead, Hope. You got something? I did want to say that it's it's kind of strange. My my dad and I were just talking about the, this last week because of Matthew Perry's passing. Um, so um, I just gave away when we're recording this, but um, <laughs> but um, he'll cut friends... it out. Zach will snip it out. It won't. <laughs> That Friends was really one of those last kind of TV shows of like art, like of the generations that like you're not going to have a show like that anymore that everybody is really watching at the same time. And, you know, with Seinfeld around that same time, you're like, that's why it's such a big deal to all of us is like wow like that person that we grew up with is no longer there and you don't really have the same sense anymore uh with that and well, you also oh go ahead uh, uh, but i was also saying like with the barbie movie too that's appointment uh that was like an event this this last summer uh it's that so it still exists, but so it's so limited. Well, I right. was going to say that I think that something that really approximated this event concept um, was like Game of Thrones. I didn't actually watch Game of Thrones, but um, people were just would talk about it the next day, like every single week when it was on. And I think you've seen it to a smaller scale with some of the other HBO shows, The White Lotus and The Last of Us and different things that like everyone on my Instagram is talking about the next day. So I think it still exists. And I think to Victoria's point about event um, sc screenings of films that kind of came out on like a Sunday night or something, I think those were great. And I think those were um, important, but I also don't think you'd get a culture of our people today interested in any one thing. I don't think we're as, you know, I don't think people in our society care enough about any one thing. There's so much you can like. Um, I mean, yeah, they still show It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas and uh, The Sound of Music, uh, two events that I love every year. But I think, you know, the gone are the days of people, everybody wanting to watch the same thing on a Sunday night. So mm -hmm. I, I, I'm thinking of one film that you mentioned, It's a Wonderful Life. Well, I don't know if you were old enough to remember the era where it was playing on 20 channels all the time on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Because it was at that point, it was considered in the public domain, and everyone was showing it. Yeah. Uh, and so, depending on what channel you put on, you could be watching the middle of it, the beginning, the end. It was an it, that was a phenomenon that was amazing. Then somehow NBC figured out that and decided to announce that they had the rights, and now they show it 
I guess once or twice a year. They um, th- those there are some specials that have managed to sustain its energy uh, that fall within the quote unquote ballyhoo period, and the two that I can think of are How the Grinch Stole Christmas and A Charlie Brown Christmas. Those two They're just harder to find they, now, they, I find. They, well they <laughs> they are because Apple TV owns the peanuts now. Um but which is a strange concept to me. But the yeah. those two still show at the moment still show on network television once a year and they do still treat it like the event that it was back in 1965 when Charles Schultz said, "Yeah, sure, Coca-Cola, take my take my comic strip and turn it into a big old animated program." Uh, and the Grinch, I don't think, no matter how many times they've reiterated the Grinch, whether it's in live action or uh, uh, Illuminations recent efforts, which I enjoy, I, I enjoy both of those iterations for different reasons. But that that original one with Karloff and uh, Thurl Ravenscroft still sells for people. It, it, it's it's a slick twenty three minutes that just endlessly entertains people every single year. And but but in terms of cinema. It's a Wonderful Life is is around, but as you said, it's readily available anywhere you want to go. I can watch It's a Wonderful It's a Wonderful Life is not technically a Christmas movie. It just happens to have Christmas in it. Absolutely. It's an it's not a it's a Christmas movie just by accident, you know? Yeah. I disagree. But, I think it it's totally a Christmas movie and I don't understand what makes something a Christmas movie if not. No, but it wasn't taking, marketed as one. Yeah, it, it, it was marketed as it's still a Christmas movie. It, well, it, it has it, Christmas in it. A lot of films have Christmas it, in Die it. Die Hard's a Christmas movie. Yeah, movie. so it so is Psycho. Psycho has a Christmas movie. It takes place <laughs> in December and there are Christmas decorations on the road when she's driving to the motel. Then I Psych- think it's a Christmas movie. Yes, yeah, well, it that's agreed. Thank you. Speaking um, speaking but, of Easter. Speaking of Easter, there is the last temptation a, of Christ. Great no, movie. AB, ABC still shows mm-hmm. on a Sunday night every yeah. year the the funniest one of the funniest films I think that was ever made, The Ten Commandments. Where's your Messiah oh, now? Yeah, well, I have a yeah. story well, for Get me a golden cap, see? Yeah. <laughs> what have you done Whoa. to me lately, Moses? <laughs> More so biz- let me tell you, God more, is God. More, more biblical epics need people from New York to just go in there and muck it up. I need that in every... That's why Willem Dafoe in Last Temptation of Christ works. Like I will that, not just, leave a man to die in the I, mud. I need Martin Scorsese to make a Joe, a Jesus movie starring Joe Pesci. This is what I need. Well, no, so let me tell you. So when Natalie was a little kid, and I can tell this story because Natalie's here and she can maybe add details. My parents... Some of us... Natalie was homesick. We're Jewish. Passover. So we're out at a Passover Seder. Natalie and my parents are home because Natalie's sick. And they turn on the Ten Commandments. And apparently... Every five seconds, Natalie's asking a question. What's this? What does that mean? Who's that guy? What's this? What's that? My mom's thinking, okay, you know what? She's gonna, she's gonna be like six, max, if six. My mom's like, she's gonna grow out of this. This is like a little kid trait. 20 plus years later, I can tell you for certain, Natalie has not grown out of the question asking habit. She does that to this day. Natalie, nice. do you want to respond to that? I do. By asking I, a question? Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't uh, ask as many questions today, but I believe curiosity is is a key tenant of uh, life, and it's why I made a good analyzer in all my paper writing. There you I go. A lot of I want to I want to uh, uh, tag along on something that Natalie was bringing up about how we are far more segmented, and it's hard to keep a focus because. I think that can be both an asset and a detriment to loving this old nostalgia stuff because 
on the one hand, it's hard to pick a lane that you really, cause you can get fascinated by something every five minutes. But if you're honed in on the era itself, you, you do have a great uh, amount at your disposal now. But I do think I do agree with her that the, the amount that is out there is so overwhelming that people will, I've noticed that people will tend to go right to the comfort zone that they know the most. Um, and I think it sometimes gets difficult for them to be exposed to new things that could be new obsessions. Like it takes a while for me to get into an old time radio show that I've never heard before. Like you need to, I need to actively commit to it or otherwise I'm not going to get invested in it. Like, like I, I don't, uh, I, I'm not as big on Lux radio theater as other people, but if I'm in a mood to try it out, I'll find a film that I want to hear an adaptation of, but I'm not as obsessed with it as other people in my group. Like I go towards comedy. Uh, so I think that thankfully the choices are so various that we have those options in front of us, but yeah, it gets so overwhelming that there's an occasional time where you're just like, no man, I'll just watch horn blows at midnight again for the 15th time. Like that, that makes sense. Well, Now, since you've brought this up about, uh, you know, you're not necessarily an expertise at say the Lux, uh, radio theater, mm-hmm. uh, but some of your friends are. What uh, can you, we all talk about? Were there contemporaries when you were a kid who you could share your passion for this stuff with, or were you alone, or was it just you? You could only, you'd had to reach out to your parents or your grandparents. Were there any friends your age that were into the same thing? Well, I'll tell you from the Gordon household perspective. Um, well, luckily, Natalie and I had each other. So I will say if anyone else here had siblings who shared that, it is a very nice thing. You know, siblings can be a real pain in the butt, but sometimes they're useful. So I'm grateful that I have one. But um, that aside, when we were, so I think it was Natalie's 10th birthday, going back to Blazing Saddles, Natalie loved Blazing Saddles. So my parents said, great, let's make a birthday party and show Blazing Saddles and we'll serve beans and everyone will sit outside and watch the movie. And it was dead. Like we're maybe, I think we get to the scene where he shows up in the town and they all see him and the flag gets unfurled and not one kid is laughing. And Natalie and I think it's hysterical. Uh So we had a hard time bringing this to other kids. The cool thing though, I will say about a film like Blazing Saddles, which obviously isn't classic cinema in the way that we talk about it. But as we've gotten older, I find more and more people who appreciate it. I think it's a challenge when you're a kid kid. Like I used to love The Music Man. It was like my favorite musical and people were like, what the... What is this weird girl singing from the 50s? But as we get older, we find more and more people closer to our age who appreciate these things. And Natalie, I think, can also illustrate what happens. You know, I think, Natalie, I'm thinking about the time we went to your in-laws for dinner when they were just, you know, your boyfriend's parents. And we sort of played the do you know who this person is game. Oh, I think, well, I think Victoria's story is that um, we happen to know a lot of um, historic film and television figures and music figures. Like I could go to friends parents like go go to friends houses and talk very intelligently about like the tv shows their parents and grandparents watched when they were younger and not as much like what the cartoon network things like i never watched spongebob or anything but i could speak very intelligently with you know a friend's parent about like i dream of genie or which darren they liked better so um it was definitely a different thing but i think for me what was interesting is even going to film school and um you know, meeting some people who enjoyed classic cinema, I mean, a lot of people, but still you'd find people who would, you know, they'd like things, you know, 
1973 on or you know star wars 77 on but you would have a harder time finding people who like the older stuff and then uh watching harold lloyd's the freshman i think my freshman or sophomore year and hearing like a bunch of like 19 year olds just burst out laughing because the truths that were said or the jokes that were said in that film were true to this day you know back you know when i was in college 10 years ago so it's it's amazing like you think people think like oh it's older it's gonna be boring it's gonna be not good but like you can find boring movies that are contemporary you can find boring movies that are older you can find great movies that are older and people just need to have an open enough mind and once they try it or are told to try it i i I found that similar experience natalie we had a generalized film expression class um and the only two analytic classes i ever took uh, at my film school were a general one and an action film course. And in retrospect, I should have taken the horror one as well, but that's beside the point. The general one, though, started pretty early on. We uh, like One of the first ones we did was Passion of Joan of Arc um, mm. by Dreyer. Um, and we did Citizen Kane. Um, that re-kicked my love of Citizen Kane, that screening in a nice big screening room. But the one that people latched onto that I noticed was The Third Man. Um, by um, by Carol Reed. And that was a rare example, though, of when people uh, were like utterly fascinated that I was seeing their reaction. Um, But when I went through film school, like what I loved was that there are certain titles that just stuck out to people. An example was um, one of my friends, we were working on a a retro radio piece like I, I, I directed a film about the death of old time radio for film school. Uh, and uh, one of the guys on there heard about Where's it. Where's that now? Uh, it's on YouTube, and it's on my or it's on my Vimeo page too. So I'll, I'll send a link to everybody. But um, but one of the guys that was going to help out on it, I was like basically calling in every favor I had, and he one of them said like, you know what, I'd love to do. I'd love to do a Walter Neff. And at that time, I had not seen uh, Double Indemnity, uh, mm-hmm. but it wasn't too long after that I finally watched it for the first time. Uh, but he said, I want to do the lighting a match with my thumbnail and we actually rehearsed it outside of where i was living like 15 times just so i could make sure he did it and it's on film now he did it but that's an example of like he knew double indemnity and wanted to pull something from that and andrew bueno who's been on the guest uh who's been a prior guest he got me to watch white heat because i liked gangster films like angels with dirty faces or public enemy petrified forest and he's like you need to watch white heat and he was correct um so like occasionally things would spill out but more often than not like when i was growing up it was me it was nobody else like <laughs> i couldn't get anybody into jack benny my felt my high school film teacher thought it was adorable that i knew about jack benny but that was about it you know like or uh the marx brothers like occasionally you'd find people that well, the Marx Brothers are different because they really yeah. had a revival in the in the sixties, the late sixties. Ex- ex- exactly, but the Mel Brooks train was funny enough, though. My oldest friend Sam, who I uh, went through middle and high school with, I got into Mel Brooks heavily around the age that we were in our most formative years, and he and I re- like went through every Mel Brooks movie. Um, and we get to the point where we were geared up and ready for the producers remake in 2005 because we just adored the subversion that Mel Brooks was giving us and the satire that he was giving us. So there's occasions where it happens, but yeah, more often than not, you're, 
you're kind of pillared in a little box in my case. Annette, did you have anybody to share with a peer that? Yeah, I think, well, like besides my family, definitely I watched a lot of these, like with my grandfather too. He passed around the time I was like nine years old, I believe. Um, but definitely uh, family was an influence. I did have some friends too growing up. Um, I'd say more so around kind of the tail end of like fourth grade for me is when um, I, I was very much on my Judy Garland kick. I'm still loving The Wizard of Oz, but around that time is when the made-for-TV biopic uh, Judy Garland, Me and My Shadows came out. And again, mm -hmm. I was probably way too young to be watching that one. There are a lot of harsh realities in Judy's life that I think went right over my 10-year-old uh, brain. But um, I do remember um, there were a couple like students who were watching that with their parents. So all of a sudden, like I could talk intelligently about Judy Garland with a couple people in my class. And um, I was still like looking for like books on the subject too in my school library and an, an elementary school library is not going to have a biography on Judy Garland. But I remember like asking uh, my librarian for recommendations and she would recommend movies. And it would be around middle school for me when I really got into theater and finding um, a lot of friends who also uh, loved like theater in general. Some of them were exposed to this era to some extent too and got some of the jokes or um, were maybe familiar with some of these classic films. So um, I'd say around that time i found more people who uh were at least somewhat familiar with it maybe they they weren't as obsessed with it as i was but um kind of knew what i was talking about or um could like recommend some musicals or relate to some of the musicals that i was mentioning but um definitely uh, throughout that i was always unabashedly a movie nerd like you knew i was obsessed with judy garland or the wizard of oz or i love lucy whatever i was into at that well, time well did your friends think you were weirdo um not my friends, I don't think, but uh, I'm sure other people did think it was bizarre. But I mean, I was in a friend group that I think uh, was really open to to all that. Um, they they oh. definitely supported and loved that. Like when it was my Good. birthday, they would decorate my locker in Lucy or Oz or whatever. So they made an effort to get to know what <laughs> I was also really into. So I never felt like I was at a point where I ever had to like hide who I was or what I was interested in. <laughs> like, I was always on this mission of this is what I'm into. I'm into old you don't have to follow yeah. this mess if you don't want to, but this is this is what it's about right now. So this is what it's gonna get, it's gonna be hard for me to stop talking about some of these interests that are so unabashedly me. So um, yeah. I, appre I appreciate you being far more extroverted than I was. I, I really do appreciate that. that oh, I was not an extrovert. It was- <laughs> Oh, you just, or, you just or I guess like you were just like, you were just like, I don't care, I don't care. This is what I'm into, I don't care. Yeah, I, I care, was pretty hell bent care. about it. That's yeah. probably more like it. Yeah, hell bent, <laughs> there you yeah. Go. Well, I don't want to turn it into like a sex thing. I don't like a gender thing. I don't necessarily think it's gendered, but to some extent it is because I feel like when a girl has kind of a nerdy passion like that, there's something kind of cute about it and charming. And when it's a guy, people think, oh, he's such a nerd. Like, <laughs> like he must like sit in his parents' basement yeah, I, and watch old movies. I, I like, Victoria, stop that. calling me yeah. out. No, no. I, I confess. Yes. I carry that with me to this day. That's the best. I love it. Hope, uh, did you, were you alone or did you have friends that you could share with? Um, I, I've been thinking about it and I was 
I'm thinking, wow, I really was so alone <laughs> mm. <laughs> in uh, in most. Let me get of out it. Jack I mean, Benny's I, violin. <laughs> right, right. I know. Um, I I I didn't have really friends that were into it when I got into high school. There were friends that you know watched an old movie here and there, um, but they weren't really into it. Um, I would say in college, I had maybe a couple couple more friends that were uh you know as people i think i think it's been said you know as you age you there's more openness to uh those kinds of things but um yeah i i really didn't feel like i could open up or share too much uh until um probably a couple years ago even because like uh you know I've have this great group of friends here and most of you I've talked to a little bit outside of uh this uh this podcast. So um yeah, it's it it's not that I wouldn't share because oh believe me, I share like even this this week <laughs> I'm going to be talking to a bunch of strangers about Jack Benny. I'm doing a I'm probably going to say this this wrong, but a Pachakacha presentation. Uh, and I'm going to do one about Jack Benny. And so uh, I, I had no problem sharing. I guess um, YouTube is probably where I started really sharing more is because, uh -huh. you know, I was just limited to who I knew uh, in my hometown or in, at my school or whatever. Um, but where are you I from? really. Uh, I lived, I would, I've lived all over, um, but mostly. Uh, I would say Oklahoma is kind of where I lived in uh, middle school and high school and college. Um, so uh, I lived in Edmond, Oklahoma. It's not super small town, but it's, uh, it, you no, know, it's, I didn't really fit in there. So I would say that in high school, I started uploading for projects because I was reading books about uh, Dean Martin and all of this kind of stuff. So I would be giving my book report about Dean Martin. So I didn't hide it, but um, I um, so I remember creating a video for YouTube, and so I would kind of reach out to people that came across my uh, videos or I came across theirs, and kind of made friends on the internet. So and that's really opened up a lot of doors. The internet did. <laughs> Yeah. That's one of the good things about it. Definitely. Yeah, you can mm -hmm. find people who share your passions. Well, and look, we all connected. Particular. We all connected because of the internet, because four of us are no soapers who met through that initial call to do an episode for the convention. And if, I don't know how Hope got involved. I'm not sure how she oh, Hope's, got involved. Uh, Hope was, Hope was uh, we, the first time I met Hope was for the first ever Betty convention, which took place in 2021. And I, uh, uh, she and I connected pretty early on because we're the younger folks in that group. Um, and so she's been, she's been leading that charge from day one, essentially. Um, she's, I also run the Instagram page yeah, now. Yeah. Runs the Instagram. You're pretty much taking care of the YouTube when I'm not editing videos. Like uh, you're posting, I need so. to do, I need to do better about There's, that. It, it's a volunteer organization. We do what we can when we can. Yeah. <laughs> well, but either way, the point is it's all because of the internet and mm -hmm. our group, like a lot of the radio recreation groups met in person and then went online because of COVID. Our group 
has been exclusively online since day one and we live across the country. I mean, we've got people, I mean, Paul, you're in New York, I'm in Los Angeles, we've got people in the middle. So we've got a really wide spread and the internet has expanded this, like you're saying, Hope, but really it's amazing to think that the internet has expanded it to the point that this episode actually exists. I mean, this would mm -hmm. not have happened without the internet. It's it, I've had the extra benefit of not just within the, within mm -hmm. our country, but abroad, like I've been very, I've been very fortunate to connect with people I admire on the other side of the pond that are into this same uh, era uh, in various different forms and fashions. And that in a lot of ways, like it, it, it's similar to this family, that family. I've got a, I'm very blessed to have a bunch of different families in very different for very different reasons or very different outlets. Um, and the, and it's it is one of the things that even as dispersed as information is, you will find your quote unquote tribe pretty quickly if you know where to look. Um, if you're a Marx Brothers fan, the Marx Brothers Council exists. If you like Jack Benny there, if you like Orson Welles, John Houston, if you like a certain director, you're going to find somebody else who's already created a Facebook group. Like, now I haven't found a Michael Curtiz fan club, but I'm always on the lookout. So <laughs> but that's, that is a great thing about uh, the Internet. I mean, it also... <laughs> depending on what tribe or group you're looking for, mm -hmm. it can be a disaster, but oh, yeah. uh, you can't. But in when I was a, a lad, uh, we didn't have that internet. And so it was much harder to connect with people. Yeah. You just, you just yelled alone. at each other in person, I remember. That's well, an ancient story. We, <laughs> I, yes, yelling was a part of my upbringing. Um, oh, no. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I grew up, one of the first things I really got into, I discovered the universal horror films and I devoured them at a very early age. And there was a, a show, I don't know if it was national, but it was in New York, where at the same time every afternoon they would show a film, and they would show it Monday through Friday, the same mm -hmm. film. So I'd be looking in my TV guide. Anybody remember the TV guide? Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. in TV guide back then... To see a film like Frankenstein or Dracula, it wasn't listed as horror. When I was growing up, it was called melodrama. So I grew up thinking that word melodrama was this special thing. Well, so, who's seen the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, if you want? Well, so, that, yeah. that, wasn't, that wasn't one of the films that was being run at the time because it was hard to see silent movies back then, unless yeah. you, you know. Unless but you knew a collector, yeah. I would watch something like The Son of Frankenstein Monday through Friday, and my mom would be screaming, what's the matter with you? You know? <laughs> I, the, and see, but, Paul, oh, go ahead. I sorry. was going to say around the year, around the time, like just before my grandfather got me into those two big clicks, we found the Universal Monsters primarily through that 1999 VHS of the Mummy, uh, the of uh, with Brendan Fraser because they they put in ads for Universal Monsters and Hitchcock, and they so technically like I didn't connect it with Golden Age Hollywood. I was just like, oh, it's a Dracula movie, but like that those things are like so have stuck with me for so long. Like well, they, for me it it was there was a magazine back then called Famous Monsters of Filmland. And in there, I discovered that there was this guy, Lon Chaney, mm. who, you know, he's a silent film. So when do you, how do you see his films? And I'm devouring this stuff about Lon Chaney to the point where I remember giving a, a talk in my school. I don't know if I was in junior high or, but I was talking about how I wanted to be a Hollywood makeup artist and passion and pattern myself after Lon Chaney. Aww. 
And it got so bad that I bought this makeup stuff. And there was one day I was visiting my friend. We were in his basement and I was making him up with this green makeup. We were trying to do some kind of thing. <laughs> and his mom came home and saw him and started screaming and chased me out of the house. But well, I, I was like, I wanted to, I wanted to see Phantom of the Opera with Lon Chaney because I'd read about it and read about it, and it was supposed to be the, the thing, the film. And I never saw it growing up until I was a teenager. One night during the week, the local PBS station in New York, WNET, was supposed to be showing something else. I don't know what happened, but all of a sudden, the Phantom of the Opera came on, and I was screaming like at my parents. The and I got to see it. But now, TCM shows it a lot. Mm -hmm. I've, got, I've got it on DVD. You know, it's, it's a different world. Yeah. Um, did, did someone have something to add? Because I was like going to go Natalie. on to another topic. Go ahead. Oh, no. I go was ahead, Natalie. Ask based on, it's, it's another topic, so we don't have to go into it. But I was just going to ask, based on when you grew up, I know you may be a little young for this, but were you exposed in theaters to a lot of the like B movies that ended up informing a lot of the the kind of big blockbusters um, of the mm -hmm. like 80s and 70s, the you know, the things that informed Indiana Jones and everything like that influenced Spielberg? I mean. I don't know, like it's all like, the, all uh, Gunga Din would be a good example. Yeah. Like, were you oh, able to well, see Gunga Din or? Yeah, but you know, not really. It wasn't, there was no TCM. So Gunga Din, I mean, yeah, they might show it one night, but if I wasn't available to watch it, I mean, my father used to talk about, oh, you have to see Gunga Din, but it just wasn't easy to see something. It, it back really then. depended on when those, at what package those stations got from what from which distribution outlet that was providing them and comedy was an easy package to sell from what i understand um so wc fields may west marx brothers these would pop up on television because that was an and, easy and the shorts the hal road yeah, shorts you yeah. know we i grew up where every morning they had a thing called the little rascals and there would be you know like a host like in New York, it was Officer Joe Bolton, or you know, he would introduce uh, the Little Rascals. I didn't know it was called Our Gang. Mm -hmm. it, to me, it was the Little Rascals, and I love that stuff. I still love it. I have all the the music, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, but there would be that. There would be someone who would show. Uh, what else? Well, I I had something similar like. Uh, the years later when I was growing up too when we weren't checking out Little Rascals from like the library or renting from Blockbuster too like there would be um channels I think like back when AMC did classics I think <laughs> I wasn't uh when it really was American movie right, channel, yeah, yeah I think Frankie right. Muniz from like Malcolm in the Middle would host the Little Rascals and <laughs> also but local access though we had um uh Rich Coase who's like Sven Gulli out here in the Chicago area oh yeah area. Sven Gulli um, yeah. they, they yeah, play yeah, him you can see him now yeah and he's he's expanded certainly uh but uh he would host Stooja Palooza so I would also watch like Three Stooges and get like context and a little bit of background to and, and learn a little something and it was uh, it was always great oh that was the I, other I, thing yes I, I, every day every afternoon there was someone who would show three stooges we episodes. had uh we had that i don't know if you had the same one annette but mm -hmm. i think it was steve martin was hosting it and it was called nyuk nyuk university uh oh, and there was uh, it was all dedicated to showing stooge classics so that's how i got my yeah. stooge education through okay. either amc or tcm one of the two must have been one of those two but 
or it could have even been Comedy Central because Comedy Central is not what it was. What it was. Oh, I remember anymore. what it was. Yeah. It was amazing yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, the Comedy Channel and and early Comedy Central had a whole ton of stuff because they didn't. Yeah, Comedy build, Channel. Even yeah. after South Park and Crank Anchors and Chappelle Show, they didn't fully expand their slate until maybe 2010 when everything was suddenly it's their programming and yeah. virtually nothing else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. I have younger nieces and nephews, you know, teenagers, uh, people now, just now going to college, or people even in their early 20s who didn't grow up fanatics. And when I tried to get them to watch something, if it was in black and white, they didn't want to watch it. This is a phenomenon that's been going on for a while. It also can lead to a discussion about that brief horrible period of time where someone decided, well, we should just colorize everything. Thank no. that one of the best things that ever happened was that that was abandoned because oh, I that, thought oh, that, that was the end. Oh, that goofy millionaire. <laughs> I really, I really thought that was Colorize Isle of Lucy traumatized and It's a Wonderful oh. Life. And Citizen Kane. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, so, they stopped. They stopped that Citizen Kane one in its tracks because there was a clause in the RKO contract for when Wells was signed up that says he will deliver a black and white movie. So Ted Turner only got through uh, the portion of Kane leaving uh, Susan's room. And I think part of the uh, ending where they're doing the whole sweeping shot across all of Kane, Kane's materials before you get to Rosebud. So they only so got here's like my, here's my question. You've all grown up in this era. You must know people who have the same thing. They have a problem with black and white. Yeah. Can somebody explain to me what the problem with black and white is? If I guess if you've grown up in a world of color, somehow black and white means that it's, slow. I don't know, slow, slow I old. Think, yeah. I, I think there's this fear among young people or this feeling among younger people today. Well, first of all, things are like lightning speed, mm -hmm. even more than when I grew up. I mean, even more than 10 years ago. Like, oh, yeah. TikToks or I don't even have it, but it's like they're like 10 seconds. Like these things are so fast that I think the idea of actually like building a plot and like building characters out. Like there are even some films that as like a, a, a massive film fan that I'm just like, this is this is slow. Like I I will have to say like there's there are there was the rare instance of something that I would watch in a class in college and I would just be like, this is a lot to get through. And I think that uh, for somebody who's not interested in it and who's used to an extremely quick, fast world, uh, to see something that takes the time to build it, they don't want to deal with it. And black and white just signifies a sort of a, um, a, a leisurely pace that bothers them. And I think people think it's going to be boring. That they, they underestimate just how... Um, real and true it can ring today like i mentioned earlier with um harold lloyd's the freshman like those truths about being a college freshman uh, can still exist and i think people don't realize that older things are going to have an application to their you know 2023 life yeah but can you explain why all of you were able didn't have that problem open-minded people <laughs> i didn't yeah but because, well in my case i was exposed to it from such a young age that i didn't it wasn't a question. It wasn't mm. like, I don't want to watch this because it's black and white. It, it was But did you even notice? Did you even notice? Did you say, this is different? 
Yeah, no, was I was able to tell it was different. I mean, I think the reality is, Paul, coming from the 90s where everything was very colorful. And I think back to the shows I watched as a child and there was a lot of color, even down to like for those, cause we're all in the same age bracket and the younger group here, Barney, I mean, mm. that kind of thing. Like there was a lot of color. So yeah, I could tell it wasn't the same thing, but the content didn't necessarily feel so remote to me. And like on the flip side, I have a cousin and I've tried to encourage him to watch. And this goes, this is television. I mean, he won't watch Frasier, which is one of my all time favorites. He won't watch Friends. He won't watch Seinfeld. He won't watch The Golden Girls. I will never get him to watch no, Jack why? Benny. Well, because it's multi-camera comedy and he thinks- Laugh track. La well, they're not laugh tracks. Believe it or not, those are I live know. laughs. But he but hates the laugh sound. He will not listen. To, he will not watch anything like that. And at a certain point, you find yourself thinking, if you close yourself off to that, you've closed yourself off to so much. And in film, that's black and white. If you refuse to watch something in black and white, you have just closed yourself off to- what, like 60 years of cinema history? Well, that's, that's why I would beg my nieces and nephews. I would say like, what? don't let that stop you. You're missing out on so much. Mm -hmm. But I've never been able to convince him. I think, I think part of it is also a matter of what you're selecting at an early age to get them started. So I'll give an example. The Universal Monsters were actually a very good example because when I'm 10 years old watching Dracula and The Invisible Man, well, it all feels crazy to me because it's a horror movie and it's the it's the most horrific thing I'm allowed to watch other than 1999's The Mummy. It's the most horrific thing I'm allowed to watch. I didn't get into Halloween yet at this point. But the Universal Monster movies are a good way to get into it because there's always something to look at. And I'll throw into the Mitch Hitchcock is very good at breaking that barrier down. Show them Psycho. Show them Psycho because it is the best approximation to modern editing that you're going to get uh, from that era. It is that do not show them psycho. You got to no. know your audience. <laughs> well, yeah, you no, can okay. scar them for life okay. if you show them psycho. If they're 15, maybe if they're 15. Yeah, they but I have a psycho, nephew who you know? saw psycho and was very unimpressed. Okay, he, to well, him, it, it seemed goofy. Well, what, you're, you're you're lost what does he like, Paul? What, what kind of yeah. stuff does he like? Exactly. Not me. Uh, he likes. <laughs> no, no, he likes slasher films. He likes modern. You could show him peep, peeping, films. Pe peeping Tom has a mm. uh, by Michael Powell has a little bit of a slow burn, but it's very it's more brutal than Psycho. That might be a good one to show him. Uh, but well, like, there's an that's a that's an example, Zach, of uh, you know Hitchcock could have made that in color. That was a choice for him back then, right? Yeah, or the and the birds can play that into it too because the concept of birds attacking people will fascinate people to no end, especially in an era where birdemic is the thing we all love to watch and laugh at. Um, you know, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, oh, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say like, I think it's just a matter of like, if you find, if you can find a filmmaker, maybe it's not even so much a film, it may be a filmmaker, who can connote something that resembles something that they're interested in. It's a, it's a, it's a decent bridge. It doesn't always work. I, I won't lie. Like there are people who I've shown psycho to, and they're kind of like, like my, one of my co-hosts on real nerds, Brad, I, he went to psycho with me in a movie theater. It was there for him. It was there, you know, I slightly disagree. I don't um, think if he's into, if you're a nephew or, for example, is into slasher films. Like, I don't think you want to show him uh, Hitchcock necessarily. I don't mm. think you want to show him something that actually tries to equate what he likes about slasher films because it's never going to be as bloody, as fast, as intense. You have to find out 
why he likes slasher films and create that same feeling through something older. It could be an entirely different genre. It can be something that, you know, maybe he loves like crazy cinematography and you go show him like real or like editing and you go show him like old Russian cinema where, you know, Mm -hmm. they're, 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 they're editing like crazy and they're doing interesting techniques. Maybe you, you find out why he likes it. You don't try to say, Hey, watch this, this, film where they're like watch psycho because you're gonna love it as much as you love you know saw 27 like you're <laughs> like I, I think like you just have to find out what the the real reason behind it is and mm-hmm. try to find something that speaks to that and say like look there's a, a, a within breath and if that doesn't work find out the director of his favorite you know slasher film google who that director's favorite historic director is and say Look at the influence this film had on what you love. Right. Paul, that, that's I'm, very film historian of you, Natalie. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I, I think it's a lost cause. Myself. I was going to say, I say move on to the next niece no, or no, nephew. No, I think this guy's. But <laughs> Natalie, has, Natalie has a good point because you can show right. if, if somebody's into Goodfellas, if somebody's into Casino, if somebody's into. Well, nobody was into the Irishman except for me. But if you were into <laughs> Casino and Goodfellas, it is not that large a leap to say, okay, well, what influenced Scorsese in making those are things that William Wellman made, things that Mervyn Leroy made. You could show them Public Enemy. Yeah, you're not going to have the same amount of uh, levels of fuck you pay me that you're going to hear throughout Goodfellas, but the intensity and the energy is undeniably there, and you can directly see where Scorsese carries that. So I, I agree with Natalie. You can, you can get If you can get down to where... They, but that's where the barrier black and white comes in again, because they I, could say, "I don't want to watch Public Enemy." That it's but the, but I well, but I know. but I reject that only because, especially within the last couple of years, black and white is not seen as a detriment; it's seen as an asset because a lot of music video artists and cinematographers for some of your favorite films are creating that aesthetic intentionally. Robert Rodriguez did that in two thousand and four with Sin City. He made an entire black and white graphic novel adaptation that killed at the box office and people may age roamed to go see that whether in theater or on dvd black and white is not the barrier i think it's agreed it's uh, with with i think it was natalie who brought it up it's speed it's speed yeah. it has to do with is this engaging their interests and and i think that thankfully because pop culture is so disseminated and you can just look up anything on youtube you are going to find a lot more people who are into this era than there were, say, 10 years ago when we were growing up. As Olympia Dukakis in... uh, uh, I'm I'm blanking out. What's the the Italian family? Oh, Moonstruck? Moonstruck. She said in Moonstruck, thank you for answering my question. (laughs) Well, and you know, I'll tell you another thing, and maybe this is... I'm curious to see if this makes the final cut. I don't think people realize because we've so sanitized the past and we've created this very like Puritan kind of early 20th century mm. concept. I don't think people realize how dirty some of the pre-code films are. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, like for example, I'll use an example from my life about 10 years ago, I went to a concert for, Car- and now that was with me actually, Carmina Barana. And we were with a friend of ours and he's like, I don't want to sit through this. This is going to be boring. 
but it had subtitles. And this is the dirtiest like opera type thing you will ever go see. I mean, it is like a pure sex show. And when we got up, this 16 year old kid we're with is like, you know, that was great. Like I would totally <laughs> go see that again. So, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes you have to appeal to their more, you know, their baser interests and just find a really good pre-code film with like lots of dirty stuff. And then they'll be like, oh, okay, black and white can be pretty cool too. If somebody, if somebody out yeah. there likes a Yorgos Lanthimos movie or a Park Chan-wook movie where things can get crazy and twisted and intense, Show him the black cat from 1934. That thing's Roman with Satanism and incest all over the place. That thing's yeah, baby. crazy, bizarre. Yeah. And for some reason, the Catholic Legion of Decency said, this is great. Well, <laughs> you don't get the condemned seal. You get the approved seal. And I'm like, you fucking weirdos. <laughs> but this, that that's an example. Like there are, but pre-code is the best example. That's why Public <laughs> Enemy would probably work amazingly because it's filled with Vi brutal violence, sex all over that place. It's just the only difference is you're and not grapefruit. Yeah, and grapefruit. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's filled with misogyny too. But beside that, filled with a lot of violence and and all the things that a a a a, 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 a younger person would enjoy. You know. Yeah, and I think to, to that effect, though, though the power of pre-code, too, I mean, that's something that I got into uh, around high school. Like, I still remember. I think the first like quote unquote like dirtier uh, like classic film that that I saw was Babyface. Like I still remember wrapping up that movie and just gaping, thinking, what did I just <laughs> see? My goodness. Like these are all very deliberately portrayed. And so, um, and of course released on those fabulous TCM Forbidden Hollywood sets. So there's so much more that you could deep dive into if you really want to like go through something that's been, been curated like that. But I think, yeah, part of it is like the exposure to that and that the depictions of, of that era that's something that i've tried to like pass on too like when i taught a high school film class i showed babyface i showed like sunset boulevard like things with these like interesting portrayals in in terms of the female leads in particular since it, I, I taught at a, an all-female high school at one point so it was interesting to try to like call together just the variety in terms of what constituted old hollywood as as the years progressed can you imagine I, being writers at that time and suddenly the haze office shows up and you spend the rest of your career trying to f f get around the censor? It, no, but, but it led to a fun classroom activity. I had my students write a scene and then haze code it. <laughs> you <know, laughs> like, nice. like, just go be as creative as you want to be. I won't look at it. Here's when they were the writing it, did they have to keep one elbow on the desk? <laughs> right. Well, here's the thing I think people also tend to do, and maybe as a in the story and in a professor, you would see this a lot, but I would, I think a lot of people, and I've, I noticed it in school and it's always bothered me, look at um, the past as if people were less capable, less smart and less intelligent and um, less good at what they did. And that now in our contemporary society, we're better at it. We can do more. And like, sure, our CGI and like maybe some of our film effects are better, but like if someone's interested in film, they can look back at the history and see how creative people were to be able to come up with not just the workarounds for the Hayes Code, but like visual masterpieces. Like I fell in love with That's Entertainment and used to watch it all the time because I just loved the grandiose like movie musicals. And if you look at like what they were doing visually, it's unbelievable when you realize they didn't have computers, they didn't have technology. And I think at least as somebody who loves a good production feat, um, seeing like how people put things together in the past creatively, like they were not less smart, less capable, less talented. They 
in some ways we're more um, creative, capable and talented than, than we have to be today. Mm-hmm. And I think if anyone's interested in making movies or loving movies or watching movies and, and they like to see crazy effects, like say, well, imagine doing that without a computer and with then nothing. show them something. How older. do you, the, yeah. the, uh, the invisible man, which is, I think was 32, 33. Right? But still, but still, but still, I, I, I know mean, what that at. was something that they, you Wizard know, no computers going on yeah. there. Wizard of Oz, yeah. yeah. I there's... stress that too with the Wizard of Oz. Like, there's the early like 1910, I think, silent version too. I show yeah. clips of that one and one about early film history. And like, I always stress, like, we're so used to comparing it to like the one we know from 1939. But it's so important to stress with the caveat that these are film pioneers. What you are seeing has never been done before. This is the first time this is being brought to screen. So gonna appreciate the effects for for what they are because there, there's nothing to compare it to at this point this is wowing audiences because of the novelty of it there's also small clips that emerge now with makeup effects that definitely mm-hmm. prove that point and most of it has to do with actually what filters are being placed in front of the lenses and what lighting you're using well, so the two I was biggest just thinking the, of um uh the dr jekyll, jekyll and, and mr, mr. Hyde, Hyde with but Frederick also March. but yeah. also there's a clip that's been going around the internet lately from a film that i still have to watch the full version of it but it's called Shh, the octopus and it just has a moment where this woman suddenly turns into a haggard old witch it's done by the same effect which uh which has to do with certain makeup combined with certain lighting effects and filters on the camera and you're transitioning out of it to expose a different form of light but since it's black and white you're not noticing a color change and right. that stuff like those are things that when they become viral that's when people's interest gets peaked into an immense degree and that ends up building their interest like even if you get one person out of a hundred, that's still one person is going to be like, well, now I'm going to watch the octopus or the invisible man, the invisible man's effects. I love the new one that came out that Lee Wannell did. Arguably the effects from 33 have still never been topped because no. I can still tell it's a, a computer compared to going like they're wrapping him in a black matted mask and they are literally doing optical printing one on top of the other layer to create one shot. And you're having to do this 24 times for a second of film. That's insane. That's a madman's dream. That's something David Oselznik would probably do with all the amphetamine he's shooting up into his system. That that stuff is insane. And yet it was work to them. King Kong. I think everybody loves stop motion. People love Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry Selleck's Nightmare Before Christmas, by the way. Tim Burton was barely involved in it. Um, it's true. Uh, or they love uh, uh, Corpse Bride, which Tim Burton apparently did have a hand in. Um, the, or Wallace and Gromit. Stop motion has never stopped piquing people's fascination. That's what King Kong is. King Kong is a fully realized visual effect from stop motion. And it's a character that gives you an emotional reaction in the process. That that stuff, I think, has I think genre has succeeded the most in terms of transcending the ages. And that's the easiest to get people interested in it, because everybody loves monsters. Everybody. Well, loves I'll tell them. you, though, on the flip side, coming from my perspective, I always loved musicals. And mm-hmm. so old movie musicals really caught my attention. And those, in my opinion, and I say this as a very strong critic of movie musicals, I don't feel those have translated as well for the most part into the present day. But give an example. Oh, I'm not giving an example. I I mean, suffice it to say, I just I feel that a lot of times the stage to screen adaptation is not mm-hmm. it's hard to be faithful to the stage show and 
good for the screen. That's where I think Hairspray really succeeded in saying, you know what, we have a good concept. We're going to pull it apart and make it a good movie. And they did mm, that. Yeah. But when you look at old movie musicals, it's a wonder. Some of what you see, I mean, I think about some of the Busby Berkeley ones, but even just some of the dance that you're watching and they weren't, you know, they were pretty much just dancing live and doing extraordinary things that the human body, you don't think the human body is going to do or that you can precisely do so often or on repeat. I mean, I think of which movie is it? You all know what I'm talking about, where they had the one take. It's the scene in, in That's Entertainment. You all know what I'm talking about, where they have one take to do this scene where they're like on a cake and it's like this long. Oh, steady... oh it's from um, the great Ziegfeld. Thank you. Great Ziegfeld. Yeah. And I mean, to do that in a film and to not have multiple takes CGI. I mean, even and this is the first musical. time I thought that I saw that I thought, wow, this is going on for like 20 minutes mm -hmm. where they're revealing layer yeah. upon layer. Brilliant. Yeah, wow. it is. And to think that that was just happening live in one take. I mean, that even without effects, that stretches our perception of what film and what individuals can do. And I think it's really great that we have things like that. So don't, I would mention that that is a huge thing too, is looking at that kind of part of history and what we no longer, what we, now I'm sure if you showed it to someone, they'd be like, oh yeah, we could do that. Like I could make that on my phone, you know? And, you, know. Uh, you brought up Busby Berkeley. I have to just mention that I was in college in the early seventies and we would show films, you know, like uh, there'd be like film night in the school in a large auditorium. And they would show those Busby Berkeley films. And, you know, we were all high. And we just, we thought that Busby Berkeley was on LSD or something, because the stuff he did, it, it was just a hoot. And people were laughing and getting into it. You know, he Didn't may well have been. Black and white. Have you guys seen Ready, <laughs> Willing, and Able? Anyone seen Ready, Willing, and Able? I have. It's been a while, but yes. But like, think about the creativity of making an entire set out of a typewriter and dancing yeah. on a typewriter. Like, like people the fact that people thought of that like it was just such a creative era hope you and i, I, I can talk about hope you i have still never seen ready willing and able but hope Either. you and i can uh, allude directly to a film that we've both seen that has an insane set piece that shouldn't have been built for any goddamn reason the horn blows at midnight and the <laughs> giant coffee cup oh yeah this cup and yeah somebody put money into wow walsh's hands to make that thing happen for a climax that makes no goddamn sense. That is a testament to insanity. And I think if you, sometimes I think if you position that to people, like going like, take a look at this thing that they spent millions of dollars on for no reason, or thousands of dollars at that point, for no reason. Just take a look at that and watch like, this was, this was the age of innovation at that point. Sometimes that peaks the curiosity factor in people, I would, I would imagine. Um, I've shown that to a friend of mine and he's just going like, that's the, that's the goofiest Willy Wonka thing I've ever seen. So, you know, Paul, I maybe wouldn't show your nephew the horn blows at midnight. No, show it, not. That show, no show please, it to him. Show please, it to him. No, show it to him. Best film of 1945. So let's, let's take a, another turn here that we're talking about, uh, you know, all our ages and watching old movies and, growing up with it and loving it. But there obviously is stuff in a lot of the older films that is, depending on how you feel about it, can be cringeworthy. Mm -hmm. uh, blackface, the racial stereotyping. Uh, how do you feel about that stuff now? You see a film 
even a Marx Brothers film, you know, where there's elements. Uh, it's just, I, I don't even know how to say it. I mean, you, it's like, wow, you know, at the time it was okay, I guess, with certain audiences, but blackface doesn't seem to hold up that well now and for good reason. Uh, what do you do when you're watching one of your favorite films and you're seeing something like that? It's a cringe moment. I remember the first time I saw Breakfast at Tiffany's and I mean, that's a little bit past our time here, but I remember seeing that and Mickey Rooney, obviously, I don't have to get into this. I'm pretty sure everyone has seen Mickey Rooney's portrayal of a Japanese man in Breakfast at Tiffany's. And I just, I couldn't believe it was even like, I, like by what principle was that allowed? I mean, it just, it feels so wrong. It doesn't, th there's nothing about that that's comfortable to watch. And I just, I can't help but feel like I appreciate that standards have changed, but at the same time, there are standards of human decency. And I think luckily we know now that those do not fall within that. Um, so I think it's important to acknowledge that, you know, in a cultural context, people felt this was okay, but that we as an audience recognize that even if they felt it was okay, that doesn't make it okay. And so do you do you not show the film? Do you snip that part out? I mean, TCM makes a point of saying there's scenes in this movie that you may find uncomfortable, but this is the way it was done. And I think people who turn into TCM understand, you know, they looking at things from a historical perspective. My oh, mom I... doesn't understand why there's such a brouhaha about certain things. She's 96. You know, to her, it's like, that's the way it was. Why can't people accept that? Well, no, well, I get it. I get that. But I think I would basically say in that situation, I'm showing you this movie for its cinematic quality. I'm not endorsing the choices that the filmmakers made that I feel are inappropriate. Mm -hmm. And I mean, all the way down to, I thought they did a fantastic job when they launched when HBO Max was launched, the service formerly known as HBO Max, and um, there were those intros added to Gone with the Wind and Blazing Saddles. At first I thought, oh, that's really funny. And then I watched them and they were really thoughtful and they really contextualized the films. I think more of that is necessary to give younger audiences who are more understanding of you know today's norms and don't understand how we ever thought that was okay. I think more of those kind of intros will help bridge that gap. Right. And I think for me, it's like, I, um, I feel like extremely privileged that I don't have to like, you know, like I can turn on one of these films. I can turn on Brexit Tiffany's and I'm not like, you know, traumatized on a personal level by seeing what happens. And then I feel like, oh my God, like that's actually, that's so upsetting to me that there are groups of people and like marginalized groups who actually have had to turn on movies and portrayals of people and felt like they weren't accepted or felt like that there was an entire period of history where they were just either made fun of or portrayed by someone who wasn't their own. And I think that that's so to me, like my, the way I like to deal with it is to really defer to those groups of people, to really listen to what they have to say, defer to marginalized groups and learn from them and say like, what do you want from me? Like if they're like, hey, this is like, honestly, like I will never watch Song of the South. Like I think it's, you know, mm -hmm. one of those films where like, I'm like, I, I don't feel comfortable turning that on. That's not my situation. And I, and I think that um, there are times when I've watched Gone with the Wind and, and I just say that is, it's a it's it's 
it's tough to see that period glorified. And I can't imagine what it's like to to um, be a marginalized group dealing with that. So I tend to defer to them and defer to what uh, people would kind of want to what, you know, if I were them, I'd want to kind of lead the conversation about that. So I don't even feel like I, I can be an authority on answering this, like let other people lead that conversation. <laughs> Yeah, and, and boy, do do we see those encounters that I think we're so uncomfortable with, too, in musicals. Like, I'm also a big Hollywood musical fan, and that's where I often encounter, like, the blackface numbers when they do the, like, the, the minstrel scenes. And that's something right. that I encountered early on, too, with my love for Judy. Some of those Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland films have them in blackface. And that's something that I, I ran into pretty early on and learned, like, this is what they were doing at that point and by no means is that okay uh within today's standards but i think that's where once again that history that context so comes into play um especially for people who didn't like grow up with these types of films and who could really value that context now in the end whether or not they're going to listen to that context is still a personal choice. I think you, you can still decide whether or not you're comfortable with even proceeding and watching the film if you, mm -hmm. you don't want to. I mean, you, no one no one is making you. But I think um, that's where I really appreciate that that context. And um, I'm, I'm one who tends to just, um, I, in terms of my own opinion, to, to keep the film intact. Granted that you're going to make a comment about that, just contextually speaking. So no one's taking by surprise. Prize, I suppose um, by, mm -hmm. by that and just to explain like um, just the reality of, of the situation too it by no means forgives like the, the decisions made by the filmmaker but it is one of those things where it's important to acknowledge um, even just from an educational standpoint to just learn about what this is why this existed what makes it wrong by today's standards and um, to hopefully proceed and then grow away from that we uh, some of us here are in this uh, recreate, radio recreation group, No Soap Radio. And there's a, always this problem. It's the Rochester problem. It's something we've been dealing with since we did our first Jack Benny recreation. Yeah. How do you deal with Rochester? Um, um, uh, and it's, we have, you know, we're, I think we need to put more disclaimers at the beginning. I know when you, you put up an episode on YouTube, Mm -hmm. I noticed that people watching things like that, they tend to turn the thing off right away. They don't like seeing disclaimers. I'm just, you know, watching the analytics of who's watching. We found an actor, an Afro-American, a black actor who is our Rochester. He likes to do it. We ha I haven't talked to him very much about it from like, you know, how do you feel about this? He just, he does it. It's something he's comfortable with. And for us, it's great because you, Zach, you remember at the very beginning, there was a discussion, well, we were all white in the group. What were we going to do about Rochester? And nobody wanted to touch being Rochester. The, well, we came up with the right solution in that, which was to insert Rochester's actual audio into the mix. Because The it's, first episode, we because... inserted the Eddie Anderson's audio. Uh, since then, we've done it with an actor, Paul Paul Patterson, who's really good at it. And um, not only is he really good at it, he was—I believe it was Rochester's daughter. Um, I forgot her name. Uh, Evangela. One of the Evangela. Evangela. Who even said that she thought he did a fantastic job. I mean, she was pretty impressed by him. Yeah. Well, Eddie Anderson's children seem to want to, you know, promote 
keep his legacy alive. Uh, but for an, a younger audience, how how do you? I mean, what can you put in a disclaimer? I mean, we're not when we're doing our recreations of a Jack Benny show. It's not like we're trying to lecture someone and like this is the way it was and and that you know where it's fun and obviously i mean rochester was one of the most popular characters i mean he got the biggest applauses when they were playing it uh you know going out on the road for those things so i, I don't I, know it's, i i i've dealt a lot with this in the last three years in researching for my own book writing efforts on jack's film career and a lot of this came to light thanks to Kathy Fuller Seeley's own work um, with Jack Benny and the Golden Age of uh, American Radio Comedy. <clears throat> and I love Rochester. Eddie Anderson's portrayal is groundbreaking to the point where the, the qualifications surrounding the very negative stereotypes that are possessed in his performance in multiple areas. It's not just his station. It's also what he's being asked to do vocally um, are in tandem with a lot of broken ground that was done completely on accident. Um, <clears throat> now I'm not going to go out there and say Jack Benny was the super most progressive person on the planet. If you read his autobiography, he had a very specific opinion about the black Panthers. So, which now we know is the wrong opinion because Thankfully, we're not getting our information from J. Edgar Hoover and Richard Nixon anymore. Um, but there is something about that performance that I can present it to somebody and say, do you want to hear the first time in American broadcasting and frankly in film where a black man was able to talk down to a white man? Because that's what the performance is. There are qualifications surrounding it, but essentially it boils down to Rochester is smarter than his boss. So therefore, there is something to laugh at. There are moments, though, when that performance goes into the stereotypical and the flat-out cringy. There are plenty of jokes pre-1945 where Rochester is given horrendous watermelon, gin, fried chicken jokes. Uh, there's one about, I'm going to close my eyes and go as a Smith Brothers cough drop. Um, it's not good. Uh, but there are a lot of things within that post-1945 that break those barriers even further. Uh, I think when you are presenting this material, my personal opinion is, yes, watch within your own comfort. You should not be forced by anybody to watch Gone with the Wind if you don't want to. If you don't feel comfortable with the material, that is your prerogative, and I respect you 100% for it. But I don't. But I think that when people don't want to watch a disclaimer or don't want to watch a contextual thing, then they are willingly going down an ignorant path, and they are they are entitled to that. But that doesn't mean I have to respect that specific opinion. Um, there is an obligation to contextualize all of this material, and it's not just from racism. It's the way genders are treated. It's the way homosexuality is treated. It's it comes from a multitude of areas. And one of my friends on the show, Marshall has said if people knew that something was wrong back then and made an active effort to push against it, then it's not of its time. There are active African-American press, uh, press uh, papers being made up into the 1920s, into the 40s and 50s. There was an African-American press out there that knew that this was wrong and were speaking out against it. 
even to the point of taking Rochester for tasks because they recycled this 1948 script that was so out of date. Um, or back to uh, Birth of a Nation, where there was an active push from black advocate groups saying this is dangerous. This is not good for our cause and it's not good for humanity. And that led to riots. You can go on PBS right now and look up the independent lens documentary, the birth of a movement. Spike Lee executive produced it. Um, or you can go to Spike Lee's movie bamboozled and watch that and get a sense of how people feel about that. How does a black man or a black creator of any kind feel about those portrayals? Cause that's a great example of one element of how they feel about that. But, you know, I, I could give you an example of why context is needed. When I was freshman year in high school, I wasn't enlisted in my film, uh, my, the video making class yet, but I volunteered to help on my off period. One of them was naming our mini DV cameras after directors. So I went through my history book and I'm like, oh, well, I'll name a camera D.W. Griffith. My teacher immediately said, no, you got to you got to fix that. And I was like, why? And he's like, Birth of a Nation is not a very appropriate movie. And I'm like, say what? I hadn't looked up what Birth of a Nation was. Nobody told me what Birth of a Nation was. They just told me it was the first feature film. And then years later, you find out that's not the case at all. <laughs> if a kid does not know that, that's dangerous. If, kid, if a kid doesn't know uh, Scarlett O'Hara slapping sissy is wrong. That's dangerous. Ignorance is far more dangerous than half the gore in a Saw movie. I will tell you that right now, flat out. And the fact that Gone with the Wind's removal and then reinstatement with a bonus feature pissed off a whole group is the most petty, stupid, ignorant thing I have ever witnessed on the internet ever. And half the reason we started this show was because that happened. And I was doing the Hitchcock thing at the time, and I'm like, okay, I want to do more about this because these things need context. Otherwise, they're just going to be thrown into a dustbin. And there is nothing a corporation wants to do more than toss older films in the garbage because they don't make enough money. Well, and Paul, I do want to throw out there, just going back to analytics, most YouTube videos, just for the record, have a drop off around three seconds, 10 seconds and 30 seconds. So unless someone specifically said something, I would not worry so much about whether it's the disclaimer that's causing them to leave. Um, and I assume people kind of want to move forward on this. But I also want to point out, we've talked a lot about black portrayals in film and television. There are so many other forms of racism and sexism and, you know, trans, not trans, well, transphobia really didn't exist then, but, you know, homophobia and fat phobia and just a lot of things that there was a very specific mold that everyone had to fit, you know, this you know, straight, white, small sized, et cetera. And I think we've come such a long way on so much of that, but we also haven't come a long way because those are still things that people expect. And I think the more we can contextualize and say, hey, whoa, hold on, we as a society understand that we are made up of billions of unique people of all races, religions, colors, sizes, shapes, sexual orientations. I just, I think there's a lot of room to continue to contextualize film across the spectrum. And that includes African-American and black portrayals, but also Asians, Latinos, et cetera, et cetera. There are so many groups that have been marginalized and pushed to the side in film. But it's, mm -hmm. and it's important to watch the material to understand where they were versus where we are now and how we can keep going beyond that point. 
stop. It doesn't. It doesn't just stop at like racism solved. Hooray! You've you got to keep going. You know. And for those interested to see kind of that, there is a whole world of kind of fringe cinema, like the Kenneth Anger cinema of the world that does explore some of these communities that are often left behind, particularly I think with Kenneth Anger in terms of the LGBTQ community and just like communities that were left behind by traditional cinema do often have kind of fringe cinema movements from history that can sort of speak to, to a lot of what those groups were experiencing. So that's something to, to look up as well. I, I would also just like to bring up that like, from my perspective of how I got into all of this is you were talking about um, blackface and one of the very first movies that I ever watched was uh, Holiday Inn and uh, I was in the second grade because I said to my mom I want to rent a hotel and she showed me Holiday Inn Um, she just sat me down really uh, she let me you know just watch it uh, and so I had no con uh, context given to me. Before. Like I don't, I don't think she even remembered there was a blackface number. Um, but the I think from an early age I learned to look at things through the lens of I am studying history and how this is being portrayed is not necessarily okay, but it's just how it was it's not anything really more or less but in order like we were saying to understand how we got here um it's it's just fascinating to me how we did things in the past and to think that race like to think that racism is solved after all these years is stupid so to just kind of study it throughout history through the lens of film, because that is a documented version of uh, our culture kind of growing up um, to really seeing the problems. And so to really uh, have this kind of documentation through film and television history, um, looking at it from the perspective of your historian trying to figure out how we got from there to here and maybe what to do in the future. And it can also teach you about the people behind the camera, whether they are um, African American, Asian, or of or, or female. Um, the history books for film were written by men, and as a result, people like Alice Guy Blachet and Lois Weber were fucking shoved off to the side and said, "Uh, uh-uh, yeah, no, 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 this isn't the story of cinema." Oscar Michaud forgotten until a certain point within the last ten to twenty years. Uh, these are there are sets that you can get from Kino Lober that explore uh, the African American cinematic experience from the earliest periods, women filmmakers, and Yiddish cinema as well. And those are angles that don't get explored because one history book is not going to tell you all you need to know about cinema. It's a wider swath than that. Um, it's no different than looking into the history of the theater and trying to decipher how was Othello supposed to be portrayed in Shakespeare's time versus when we got to the uh, the interpretation we get today you know you you realize that there's uh, there's so much you've got to dig into that it's not just solved by one question that's why when i when when you come up with a moniker of like gone with the wind being one of the greatest films ever made i'll be like well i would argue that there's enough evidence to supply that it's not uh but i understand that money means more to people but 
that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, and it's fine if you like Gone with the Wind, but and you, it's fine to admire Hattie McDaniel's performance and why she won an Oscar, but you have to know what was done. And funnily enough, when you read about it, you understand David Oselznick was actually technically doing the most conscious version of that story for its time, which is baffling until you look into the weeds and realize the reasons that film was made and why it was so important for an entire group in the South. Like there are elements to that story that you have to reckon with and realize that it's a deeper seated trauma that this country explores. And our country does not like to explore its past. We don't like that at all. We don't, but we don't have any fucking choice anymore. <laughs> um, I think we should think about uh, winding this down. I was, mm -hmm. you know, we've, uh, I had one final question, but we've kind of answered it in dribs and drabs here and there. You know, I was going to say, if you, if you were trying to pass along your passion for this golden age or old time radio, all this material, how would you go about introducing a younger person to it now? Um, I know we've said a couple of things maybe along those lines already, but would anyone have something they'd want to add about how, how to do that? Introduce him to Zach. He'll give him a recommendation <laughs> of like a specific <laughs> film, apparently. So just subscribe to the, his, the Ballyhoo podcast. That's it. That's no, it. no, <laughs> no. Click the unsubscribe button. Go find Karina Longworth. She's better at this than I am. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, uh, Looney Tunes and Disney are the best entry gate points uh, from a wider swath. Honestly, I think it's a matter of just, it's kind of goes back to something Natalie was saying is engaging their interest that is current in the moment and just asking casually, do you want to check this out? And even if they say no, you have no idea if they're going to pop up years later and go like, hey, remember that thing you mentioned that one time? Let's sit down and watch it. You have to let them decide. Because Golden Age of Hollywood is not the only era of cinema that exists. And thankfully, people will find the new wave and people will find the blockbuster 80s era. Like, these are all legitimate and valid areas to explore. I think it's just a matter of just letting them come to it. And it doesn't hurt to have physical media on a shelf that people can see the movie and say, ooh, this looks neat. The Wolfman? Shoot, I want to watch a Wolfman movie or Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like, there's something that's lost. We don't have artwork for our posters anymore. Sometimes that's a good selling point too. Somebody looks at that and goes, Oh my God, I want to know what this is. Um, you know, and I think eventually, you know, there's so much access to interviews with directors now that if you like Quentin Tarantino, odds are you're going to find, you're going to find yourself winding down the seventies route. If you like Scorsese or George Lucas or Steven Spielberg, if you like Steven Spielberg and you like his war movies, you're going to hear about the best years of our lives and you're going to sit down and watch the best years of our lives. And you're going to go, shoot, that might even be better than Saving Private Ryan. Uh, uh, George Lucas, Star Wars. If you hear, oh, this came from 1930s and 40s serials like Buck Rogers and stuff, those are all available on YouTube for free. Right. And there's nothing we love more in this generation than, oh, gosh, I don't have to pay $5.99 a month for it. Sure, I'll watch it. <laughs> you know, um, Or Captain America. Let's say Captain America, for example. People want to know what Captain America or Batman or Superman looked like before the CG era. Even if you want to giggle at it, I don't care. <laughs> uh, 
you can sit down and watch those serials. They're available. Uh, and they, you can even still get a little tinge of the thing that you love about that subject from it. Even if you don't think it's better than the thing you have now, you, you might still find yourself appreciating it, but you got to let people come to it. You can't force it down their throats anymore. It's one thing I hated as a kid was when somebody mm -hmm. was forcing something down my throat, like religion. I don't like, I don't like people forcing me to do that. No, I stick with it. Like I don't, I ask my girlfriend, do you want to watch this movie with me? She says, no, cool, fine. Fair enough. If she, and then there's occasions where I'll put something on and then she just gets sucked in. You know, it's just, sometimes it's better to just have it on, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I don't know if anybody else has another suggestion. I'd love to hear actually. Cause I'm, yeah. I would say that, you know, you can tell a sales pitch. So when someone tries to sell you on something, there is this kind of like rebellious, like thing inside of you. That's like, eh. like I I've definitely done that before. Um, didn't read Pride and Prejudice for years because my mom loved it so much and told me I should read it and I didn't. Um, but I love it. Anyhow, um, I think whatever medium you're interested in, whether it's podcasting or YouTube or TikTok now, um, finding a way to kind of showcase that love is, uh, if if that's your thing, if you're a creator like that, I would say that's that's a good way to share um, you know, it can be silly s sketches or like s taking a trend or whatever, or just even like you were saying with that viral trend of, uh, the octopus, like mm -hmm. that, or, uh, that viral movie or video clip, um, yeah. like kind of taking that and like saying contextualizing it for someone or, um, taking something that already exists, like, did you know that this person like has this connection to this and like explain, explain that a little bit. I know I've seen, um, uh, Oh gosh, it, I don't remember her name ironically, but the, the wife, the Wi-Fi. does anyone know what I'm talking about with the actress and the Wi-Fi? What? No, no. Oh my gosh. Hattie, uh, was it Hattie? Oh, Hattie Lamar. You mean that yeah. she was one of the oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. And that viral, that viral fact, I've seen that everywhere. But that's the kind of thing that's really gonna, um, kind of be that spark that's like makes people curious to explore more. So just giving them the spark, you don't have to explain the whole thing, just giving them that little bit of a spark to kind of give inspire them to explore because that's the fun part right is we all explored it on our own mm -hmm. that's it and long live tcm <laughs> amen down with david mm -hmm. so would you would uh, so a number of us uh, are doing things that i feel like you should promote uh whether you're working on your website or you know, uh, Annette, talk, tell us uh, once again about your your website and the, the your uh, the hometowns to Hollywood. Sure. Uh, yeah, hometowns to Hollywood.com is my travel blog and website. Uh, it's one I still actively write for and travel for. So I write about how some of these classic film stars are still being 
celebrated and remembered in their hometowns and beyond. So I look for things like birthplaces, childhood homes, statues, plaques, museums, film festivals, etc. Anything that lasts in relation to their lives and legacies in their hometowns and beyond. So some are remembered more than others. Some it's really easy to find uh, just tributes to. Some it's tougher. Sometimes there's not a whole lot left and I really have to do some, some digging in terms of their ancestry and genealogy and go looking for addresses and see what exists on that front. So it's a fun, varied search that blends my love of travel, research, and of course, classic film. Uh, and uh, in addition, I do lectures uh, virtually and in person. Um, all of them are listed on hometowns to hollywood.com slash events. So um, I'll do like themed presentations that maybe focus around a certain genre or like a holiday or just some sort of overarching topic or um, these profile presentations that are more individualized or tailored to a particular person, their life, career, and legacy. Um, so if you want to learn about some more of these figures or um, kind of broadly so. Uh, you did please, a great uh, yeah, uh, presentation on Waukegan at for the last convention, the Jack <laughs> yes, Benny convention. I hope course, you're going to yeah. be doing something for this year. And uh, I am. Yeah, we'll get the Phil Harris side of the story now. <laughs> okay, we'll have to talk about that because um, I'm involved in, in that stuff. But Fabulous, um, yeah. Yeah, for those of you out there, you should check out the Jack Benny Convention, which uh, comes around in February. Um, lots of interesting things happening there. Um, Natalie, is there something that you want to promote? My sister is amazing. <laughs> and her website and anything Victoria is about to say, listen, because as a completely non-objective outside party, I could say she's amazing and everything she does is takes a lot of work and effort and she does amazing stuff. So just listen to her. Oh, well, I could say the same about Nat, although she doesn't really do a lot of public stuff when she shows up. She's a harpist and um, I am hoping oh, to feature yes. her on December 14th. I'll be doing a virtual holiday concert. So hopefully this airs before then. Otherwise, you can cut that out. But um, you can always go to thevictoriagordon.com where I list events. I have archival stuff. I have all kinds of things. Singing shows. I mostly sing vintage show tunes and some standards. Um, sitcoms that I've put together, um, films I've made, things like that. So I highly recommend checking out my website and you will notice Natalie's fingerprints all over it because she has been such a huge part of everything I do. Uh, Hope, uh, well, I, I know you're I, involved in lots of Benny material. Yeah. Um, well, I would just like to say, Victoria, every time you talk about what you have going on, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's like amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're doing so much. Oh, um, I, uh, I, yeah, I'll be working on the Jack Benny convention. I've got some things uh, going on in the background and I'm sure I'll be putting together a video. Um, but uh, I am, tr uh, Zach, you'll like this. I'm going to try to revive my All of the Classics podcast. Yes. What um, is that? My podcast that I was doing that Zach's been harping on me for like a year and a half to bring it back. I call <laughs> I call her every night at two in the morning and well, go, what is it? What <laughs> revive is it? it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's where I just talk about, uh, I interview someone that has a passion for a certain celebrity movie or whatever and we just discuss discuss that and uh their background as well um so uh i just kind of use it to talk with people who are passionate about classic media so um 
Yeah, I'm, I I have some old recordings that I never got to uh, that I will be bringing back and um, or trying to bring back. And so that'll be on all of the classics or um, there was an issue with the, my podcasting hosts got bought out. And so I uh, what I might I might move it over and change it to I'm going with show of hope, maybe. Um, so just be paying attention to both of those handles that I have on social medias, Instagrams and Facebooks, TikToks, whatever. <laughs> Great. Great. Uh, I'll just, uh, we, I'll say that I'm going to be involved uh, from a technical side on the presenting the Jack Benny virtual convention in February. Zach is the host and producer he's so he's going to be on the air doing the whole thing again i'll be more behind the scenes pushing buttons and doing what i like to do and uh, <laughs> uh but i'm thrilled that all of you who are a lot younger than me are keeping the whole this whole mishbucha alive um i used to think boy you know People are just going to stop watching the old stuff It's because of the way, you know, people reacting to black and white or whatever else. And I thought this is this could be gone in 20, 30, 40 years, but you're all keeping it alive and therefore it's going to be around for a long time. And I'm thrilled. So with that, I'm turning it back over to your real host. Zach Eastman, here he is, ladies uh, and gentlemen. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Paul, for that. This was this has been a marvelous treat and a very varied uh, discussion that has a lot of valuable opinions strewn about. I think it's important to have something like this exist uh, as an episode to give people a, 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 a good understanding as to why this this era means a lot to us, as well as uh, really exposing hopefully newer titles that we haven't even talked about and just kind of giving a perspective at this point as we're heading into yet another tumultuous year of uh, crazy things that will probably happen. Uh, understanding our past is the only way we can keep moving forward into the future. And there's no better way to spend my time on a, on a Tuesday night than talking with lovely people that I adore uh, chatting about this very era. It's, it's, it's a it's proof positive that people do care, uh, even if it's just the six people in this room. So thank you very much, guys, for for contributing to this and for giving Paul an opportunity to exercise this whim. This is an absolute treat. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us on the back half of the program. Coming up on the show, uh, we're going back to Fritz, Fritz Lang. That's right. Going back to that expressionist madman. Uh, because John Bianti and I are going to be tackling Metropolis, uh, that great sci-fi epic that has now been solidified in its glory by being art decor for the Alamo Westminster. Uh, but it's also a really good sci-fi film, so stick around. You're going to hear more about that. And we'll go ahead and announce this right now. By the time you hit, listen to this, we'll be gearing up for this recording, but we mentioned somebody earlier in the podcast that was very influential for many of us. And he's going to come on the show to talk about the meanest man in the world from 1943 because Leonard Malton will be making his official Ballyhoo debut. 
so stick around for that. That's currently in the works. Uh, so we're just going to figure out our schedules, but that will happen. And additionally, please tune into YBR Presents, where Rashmi Manon and I are talking about Japanese horror. Uh, by this point, we might be getting into some kaiju territory, so stick around for some Mothra talk. Uh, but until all of that, and until next time, folks, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod and now on threads under the same handle. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our introductions were done by Henry Jarvis. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs> <laughs>